This episode of the MJ Cast is brought to you by Audible, the internet's leader in audiobooks. With over 400,000 titles, everything from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, whatever it is you're into, Audible has it. And get this, listeners of the MJ Cast get their first audiobook for free. So head on over to audibletrial.com slash the MJCast and sign up for a one-month free trial. Show Audible and the MJCast some love. That's audibletrial.com slash the MJCast. The following is a presentation from the MJCast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass, you become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. (laughs) Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello, and welcome to the MJ Cast. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is James Allais. We've got a great special for you today. Today, we are celebrating Michael Jackson, history, his story, past, present, and future, book one. Released June 16th, 1995, today we are discussing, analyzing, and celebrating the monument, milestone, and the man behind this incredible piece of art. For today's History 25 Roundtable Discussion, we couldn't be more privileged than to have this incredible panel of guests. Say hello, we have today Samar Habib, co-founder of the excellent Michael Jackson Academia Project. Hey James, how are you? Are you alright? I'm great. John Cameron, host of JC's Musicology. Hello everybody. Maria Paulberg Masoga, fan and longtime friend of the podcast. Hey. Ricky Alexander, fan, friend of the podcast, and author of an excellent Medium.com article, a track-by-track analysis of the History Album. Hello, Ricky. Hey, how's it going? And me. I'm your host, James Allais, hopefully a familiar voice to you. I've had the privilege to join a few episodes of the MJ cast in the past, and for today's History Roundtable, Jamin and Elise have asked me to take the reins. Big job, but I'm up for it. So let's begin. Panelists, tell us a little something about yourselves. Samar. Hey, James. I'm Samar, of course, of the Michael Jackson Academia Project. Longtime fan of Michael Jackson. About 35, 40, geez, 40 years. <laughs> I'm so old and based in London and just lifelong fan of Michael and his family and very proud. Samar, you're an old friend. I'm so happy to have you on today's panel. Lifelong MJ fan. So you knew history from the moment. It came to be back in 1995, correct? Yeah, and History was the first CD. I was very late to the CD phenomenon. History was the first CD I actually bought because I used to have a Sony Walkman. I used to listen to tape cassettes. When I used to buy official released products, it would always be tape cassette. Great first CD to have. That thick two-disc giant booklet, beautiful. Beautiful. came in this kind of box slipcase, and it was a big shift in my listening Michael Jackson, because I'd always listen to him on either vinyl or tape. So this was like brand spanking new and kind of glittery and very, very good time to be a Michael Jackson fan. That's awesome. And it's a great production to hear on CD, essentially for the first time. And speaking of production, we have Mr. John Cameron, host of JC's Musicology, an incredible 
podcast journey through the musicology of so many incredible artists, of course, including Michael Jackson, George Michael, Janet Jackson. I think you had a Joni Mitchell one. It's such a pleasure to have you on here, John. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's uh, it's such a pleasure to be here. I'm calling in from Melbourne at the moment in Australia. Uh, it's a little bit early, so I'm I, I'm waiting for the energy drink to to kick in, but we'll get there eventually. My uh, memory of history is uh, I'm I'm not quite old enough to to remember its release, but I do have fond memories of uh, of those wonderful gold discs. I was in the gold disc club, not the not the silver that many other fans seem to have. Also, the cassette. I have great recollections of, of long drives going to visit my grandparents and my mother and I would listen to the uh, cassettes from start to finish in the car. They were actually the perfect time from where we live to where my grandparents live. So that's most of my memory. Your first exposure, uh, when was that? 1995, a little later? It would have to be a little bit later. I think my first exposure was probably You Are Not Alone. That was played almost at nauseam on radio and certainly my first compilation which would have been number ones that was featured on there so I'm, I'm guessing you were not alone it's so cool to have you on here john welcome hello maria so nice to have you on here as well tell us where are you located i'm in sacramento california elise was kind enough to share a video that you had put together documenting some of the protests going on around you very nice work by the way yeah the- <laughs> That was a crazy experience. It happened, um, I think, two weeks ago, you know, when all the protests were happening throughout the country here. And I didn't even mean to really go to the protests. I was walking my dog and then all of a sudden I saw this huge parking lot full of cops, full of cop cars, and they're loading up the cars with weapons. And I asked them, like, is there a protest happening? She said, yeah, there's a protest. So I ran and I went there and then I just decided to film three days of protests straight. That's awesome. Set to They Don't Care About Us, of course, no better soundtrack for such a moment. Tell us about your relationship to history. I was really young when history came out, so I don't remember the release. But I remember like the, the golden disc. And I thought that was so cool that, you know, his face was on the on the discs. And I actually took the CD booklet with me to school. I used to keep it in my school bag. I would like read it on the bus and I just thought it was the coolest thing. Mr. Ricky Alexander. Fan and friend of the podcast. Nice to have you on here. You wrote a beautiful track-by-track analysis on the History album. So clearly it's a project that you're deeply connected to. First of all, where are you from? I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, you'll say. Very cool. Okay. Nice. Not too far from me. I'm up in Cleveland, Ohio area. So we've got Maria, you're in Sacramento. We have three Americans on the show. How, what was your exposure to history? I didn't hear history for a long time. I actually, I wasn't born when it first came out. I was born late in 1995, so I didn't hear it until much later. I became a Michael Jackson fan when I was in about fifth grade. I was about nine years old. And a lot of history wasn't on the greatest hit collections. Like the first CD I ever had was The Essential Michael Jackson. The only song from there was You Are Not Alone. So it was actually a lot longer before I started actually hearing history and a lot longer before I actually started to appreciate it and see it deeper. It was harder to see that as a kid. It, it took me actually growing up to actually understand all the implications and all the messages buried in history. That's part of why I wanted to write the article because it was it was a journey to actually understand it. And I feel like that's how more people will appreciate it. You know, Ricky, it was a great start to read your article to prepare for today's discussion because like you're saying, there's there is so much beneath the surface 
And whether it's for the second time or for the thousandth time, it feels like every listen to history is a new look at the project with deeper meaning. And it's as relevant today as ever, not just because of the Black Lives Matters movement for justice, but also in the wake of Leaving Neverland last year. And folks, that's what we're here to do. Samar, John, Maria, Ricky, and you at home or wherever you are, get ready for some bombshells. And by the way, I couldn't be happier than to have this panel made up of such a diverse group of intellectual minds. Diverse in race, backgrounds, gender, and I think especially relevant to the monument that is history, we're diverse generationally. Samar, a lifelong MJ fan going all the way back to the Jackson 5 days. Myself, a kid in awe during Michael Jackson's prime but also a new generation of Michael Jackson fans whose deeper exposure may have come past his run here on Earth. And that quest for immortality is actually where I'd like to begin. To do so, we need to go all the way back to 1979. At the age of 21, fresh off the release of the Off The Wall album, while on tour with his brothers, Michael Jackson wrote the following on the back of a tour itinerary. MJ will be my new name. No more Michael Jackson. I want a whole new character, a whole new look. I should be a totally different person. People should never think of me as the kid who sang ABC or I Want You Back. I should be a new, incredible actor, singer, dancer that will shock the world. I will do no interviews. I will be magic. I will be a perfectionist, a researcher, a trainer, a masterer. I will be better than every great actor roped into one. That tour was called Destiny. And it is with this manifesto that Michael Jackson would begin the journey to become Michael Jackson, the King of Pop. Over the next 16 years, that young man would embark on a journey that would take him to unparalleled heights, but also profound struggles. He would face systemic racism. Sadly, that's perhaps nothing all that unique for a black man in America. But for the King of Pop, those systemic injustices would play out on a grand public scale, resulting in child sex allegations, drug addiction, and failed business dealings. During those dark years, a 36-year-old Michael Jackson had to have wondered if everything he had worked so hard to build, everything he had manifested, would last. He needed a monument. So he built one. Titled History, or His Story, Past, Present, and Future, Book One, the two-disc set contains 15 greatest hits on disc one. There's also a second disc called History Continues. 15 tracks, 14 of them brand new. The whole package is symbolized by its literal monument cover. It includes a 52-page booklet, a sarcophagus filled with pages of his awards, accomplishments, and adoration. And just to make sure it resonates and sticks, his use of propaganda art is proliferated throughout the project. There's evidence he even looked to great monument builders of the past. On page 31 of that booklet, where history begins, ends, and where history continues, begins, is a new piece of art portraying Jackson as King Khafre, the great monument-building king of ancient Egypt, guided by Horus, the Egyptian god of enlightenment and wisdom. From manifesto to monument, from destiny to history, this is Michael Jackson history, past, present, and future, book one. So let's get into it. Samar, how is history relevant today? The brilliance about Michael Jackson is he's always relevant. He will always be relevant. Obviously, with what's going on in the world now, with the Black Lives Matter protests, I don't even like calling them protests. I like calling them uprisings, because if they were taking place in Syria and 
you know, the Syrians were kind of up in arms against their government. We wouldn't call them protests or riots, we'd call it an uprising against the government. And we shouldn't look at it any differently. You know, the way the black people are being treated in America is scandalous. It's an uprising. The government has failed to kind of act and do anything about it. You have a president in charge. You, there's not enough things you could say about him, but his interests do not lie with the protesters, I imagine. And in the um, immortal words of Mariah Carey, where a hero comes along, you need a hero in a moment like this to just cut through the bullshit and say what is happening. And in 1995, when just after the Rodney King protests and uprisings then, Michael Jackson came out and recorded this album and one of the songs, you just couldn't mess with the title of the song. They don't care about us. And you have the biggest celebrity, biggest artist, the most famous man in the world saying something that explicit and clear and without doubt. And it reverberates around the world because you can't get away from it. You know, when people in India hear Michael Jackson, famous black entertainer in America singing, they don't care about us, they pick up on it. And when people in Nigeria hear that, they will pick up on it. When people in Manchester in England hear, hear that, they'll pick up on it. And it's impossible to get away from. Chuck D from Public Enemy many, many years ago when Public Enemy toured the UK in the late 80s, he was giving an interview on BBC TV. He was talking about hip hop music. He said, we are the black CNN. And at the time, I didn't really kind of understand fully what he meant by that, because, you know, in the UK, we had three TV channels in, or three or four TV channels. In America, you had, even then you had cable network channels. The message that Public Enemy were sending around the world was nothing compared to anything we'd heard from America. It was the era of Ronald Reagan. Everything was Hollywood and everything was glamorous. And you had the LA Olympics in 1984 and everyone wanted to be American. And suddenly you had Public Enemy and Chuck D saying, well, actually, not everything is rosy. And then fast forward about 10 years, you have the biggest superstar who's ever lived saying they don't care about us. And I actually tweeted about it earlier this week saying it's not just that he says they don't care about us. The lyric is, all I want to say is that they don't really care about us, which makes it even more kind of explicit. It makes you wonder who's the song actually about, the people who claim they care about us, but perhaps they don't. It's not really about the haters. It's the ones who are pretending not to be the haters. Yeah, but also this is a man who sits on boardroom tables. This is a man who, you know, from the outside looking in, he has it good. And, you know, there was lots of press around the time prior to the allegations in 1993, people who were saying that Michael had abandoned his community and kind of had left them behind and didn't pay attention to them, didn't pay mind any mind to them. Well, fast forward again, a couple of years to 1995, this album, you know, it's, it's a tribute to the black community in America. And that song is a tribute. And it is telling people in no uncertain terms that they don't care. They do not care. This song is so fitting for everything that's going on right now. Even like people protesting, they had their speakers with them and they were blasting, they don't care about us. I'm still kind of processing everything that happened. But yeah, you know, the thing with history, it always repeats itself. You know, like you said, with the Rodney King situation. Yeah, it's kind of happening all over again, but in 2020. And it's not just they don't care about us. It's a bigger package. And of course, we're going to deep dive into they don't care about us. But it's a package that talks about money, greed. It talks about fake news, tabloid junkie. It talks about false accusations, mass hysteria, criminal, criminal investigators. 
It has the one love song, of course. John Cameron, you've spent some time looking into history as a production and its musicology. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, in terms of where I see the album in the context of today, I, I think it belongs on the same shelf as Marvin Gaye's What's Going On or Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation. And certainly post-leaving Neverland, it's it's interesting that perhaps the perception of Michael is is not that great with a lot of people, but the message is so strong that it that it cuts through that. And it's essential to understanding his story as well. It's his response to what was occurring at the time and what has occurred since, both personally and, and externally. It sure is. Ricky, Memphis, Tennessee, how is history relevant to you today? It's a complicated irrelevant. It's not so much the message, but the messenger. I mean, being from Memphis, Memphis is a predominantly black city, and the image of Michael has kind of been lost through the years. What he's saying, I mean, for me, what he's saying is right. It's just so much, it's hard to take it from him with how much he changed for a lot of people around. But also with the time period, I mean, before the album even came out, they tried to come out and call him an anti-Semite. And people didn't want to listen to what he had to say because of that. I mean, a lot of it's been tainted, but at the same time, he uses the sound of hip hop to deliver it. Like Samar was saying earlier, hip hop is the black CNN. That's a kind of recurring theme through history. He did it you know, on Too Bad and Tabloid Junkie and this time around, not to deviate from They Don't Care About Us. But for us, I mean, a lot, now that people have had time to separate the art from the artists in some ways, it's become more about the message. I mean, ever since Black Lives Matter first popped out a few years ago, I think directly connected to Trayvon Martin, it's been an anthem from the very beginning. And it's past time that, you know, people are starting to finally listen to what he had to say and start to see that he, you know, like they were trying to say earlier, that some people felt that Michael was disconnected from the community. But it's here that you see he's been paying attention all along. He's always been a part. I mean, you might not see it outwardly, but he was always there. So that's what I see looking back on it. I mean, especially being young now. We're all students of Michael. And there are varying levels of awareness. So forgive any of us if at any time we sound ignorant. And ignorant is the right word. Sometimes we just don't know. But no student of Michael intends to offend. But forgive me ahead of time if, if, if I don't have the right to say it. But I do believe that Michael Jackson is one of the predominant black heroes in America. He is a black cultural icon in America. And he happens to be, in my opinion, one of America's greatest exports to the world. And I caution myself to speaking on behalf of the black community, but I'm not incorrect to say that. Yeah, I, you know, he grew up in Garingdown as, as part of one of the most famous black families who have ever lived. It's a particularly special relationship, isn't it? It's a very special relationship that the black American community has with this man. It's one that fans on a global scale who cheer the guy coming out of the rocket ship it, it's tough to wrap your head around, and it's it's something that's quite, quite deep. It's a weird phenomenon, you know, because I guess because he changed so much physically, people like to forget that he was Black. They kind of separate it like, oh, Michael, when he was younger, he was Black because he had the Afro, and then he became this totally different person. And they kind of forget his roots, and they forget that he was a Black American. He had a Black family, you know, and he meant a lot to Black people. When you talk to, you know, people that aren't fans, I don't think about these things it's almost like they forget that he was a black person and that he would care about these things, and that he would care about police brutality and, you know, how black people in America are treated. It's, 
it's a weird phenomenon to me. I've had conversations with people and they're like, man, he wasn't even black. He didn't want to be black, but he did. Unfortunately, to dive deeper into it, I mean, there's so many of them who feel that he rejected his blackness. I mean, it even goes past the vitiligo. I mean, even if they don't argue with that part, they'll be like, oh, he wore straight wigs. He changed his nose. He he had these white kids, which I don't want to get into. You know, and it it just goes, it goes even deeper than that. And some of them will even argue that, you know, he didn't even start trying to express his blackness until after he was accused on history, which is why they don't pay attention to it. And I mean, that's unfortunate because dangerous was that before history was it was a very much an expression of blackness if you know people know what to look for but i mean it's that type of complicated relationship which is what i was trying to say earlier like i speak kind of for my family and the families that i grew up with you know like my mother she was a huge michael jackson fan she was she's a few years older than him she was a huge fan when he was a part of the jackson five but she said as he changed it was harder to relate to him so many people that I've grown up and known and were around them, they say the same thing, similar things. There are a lot of them who, you know, were able to see him for who he actually was beyond, you know, the vitiligo and the hair. But overwhelmingly, it's it's hard for, I don't want to say everybody, but a lot to separate those two. I mean, to see him is still my, like, it's easier for me looking backwards, but for, I guess for people who went through it, it was, it's harder to look at him as the same person he was when he was, you know, 11 and then 24 and then you know 35 he's still viewed that way he's still viewed as a black icon but it, there's still that narrative that kind of creeps in from some people more so locals non-fans it's the cruel irony of nature and perhaps even to some degree his artistry that the black man would be wearing a white mask a title of a excellent i believe vibe magazine article from 2001 still as relevant today as ever Okay, shifting gears now to the artwork on history. We talked already about how history is a monument, and literally how the cover art is a monument. But also throughout the project, throughout the promotion of the project, is Michael Jackson's use of propaganda art. I've always thought it was quite interesting what the history album cover looked like. And I do wonder whether Michael was inspired by the famous Lenin poster which you can search for on Google. It's a Lenin propaganda poster of Lenin standing on this. It's a painting and is standing in front of this red cloud background. It has a really similar layout to the history album cover. So when we saw the history teaser, Michael denies everything, of course, but it's clearly based on political propaganda videos and the unveiling of the statue takes place and people are going crazy at this likeness of Michael Jackson. But what's really interesting about the whole thing now with what's going on in our world currently is what value people place on statues and why we have statues of particular figures and it's because of what society deems to be important and historic and valuable it's such a ballsy move for michael to come off the back of all of that negative press hysteria to then present himself as this massive historical figure worthy of the statue where people are kind of screaming it's just it's just such a ballsy intro to the album and the album is of course this kind of ferocious michael jackson as a warrior recording his use of propaganda art is prolific throughout to be honest a great deal of his career actually but in particular the history album and he was sort of caught in a moment i think with diane sawyer when asked about the Nazi German 
piece, Triumph of the Will, if it was inspired by that. And I think Michael's response was very careful, which was when he said, I watch everything. Because if you look at Triumph of the Will, it's quite controversial. Yes, it's reasonable <laughs> to ask if you were inspired by even Nazi propaganda art to proliferate your message. And I think what an artist like Michael Jackson recognizes is that propaganda art is highly effective, right? He studies yeah. effective yeah. art and effective artists, and mm -hmm. he's plucking technique and he's using it for his message. Yeah, I wanted to ask you guys maybe a controversial question, but all the negativity that, you know, surrounded the teaser video, you know, people saying he was such a narcissist, this yada, yada, yada. If you guys had seen another performer make something like this, would you have had a, the same reaction? Would you have had a negative or a positive reaction? They wouldn't be able to pull it off, for one. Like, they, they wouldn't <laughs> look as good doing it. They don't know the art. They haven't studied the greats the way Michael studied the greats, right? They would, it, probably not would be the it, answer. Probably not. I don't think anyone else could do it, <laughs> flat out. <laughs> But I mean, you know, people glorify like a Beyonce, right? Not saying I'm not starting that whole conversation, but like if we would have seen someone like her do something like this, would we have had the same reaction? Because, you know, we feel like we know Michael and like, he read everything and he was into history. So we understand it. But would we have felt the same if we saw it from someone else? I think what makes it so fascinating for Michael to do something like that was he was at that moment in time, in that moment in history, he was such a in media, in the media, he was such a divisive figure. You know, people uh, had already kind of set their stalls out on either side of the debate. There's people like us who say he was wrongfully vilified and it's an absolute miscarriage of justice that anyone could kind of even besperge his name. And then there's people on the other side who, you know, have their own views. So, I mean, what's so incredible about that teaser is this massive vilification and massive toxicity. And then it's like Michael... Is, is ignoring everything and is just putting up this it's like a big fu basically to everyone who's passed comment on him for the last three years so for example beyonce doesn't have that kind of level of controversy that surrounds her to her benefit obviously but she's not as a contentious figure in media or in the world culture i don't think and i feel like what she allies her image with wouldn't fit that type of thing. I mean, Michael kind of allied himself with kind of military type of imagery, which is why for him it fits. But also, obviously, as you guys are saying, it's it's a very defiant video. I mean, it it pissed the critics off something awful. They felt like he was, you know, being such an egomaniac and stuck in his own past megalomania, even though I mean to the day he passed away, no matter where he went, he drew crowds. But at the same time, I mean it's a very clever use of propaganda, but it's, an, it's, just a, it's just an enhancement of the images that he was already... I saw an excerpt from uh, a book he was reading about, you know, idolatry and about being a public figure and about how allying yourselves with certain things that people know about would make you seem larger than life. And he had written on the book, you know, that's me and the military. So I feel like it's just kind of natural to see Michael Jackson in such a you know, such an environment, I mean, versus I don't really see anybody else pulling it off that way because who has been as huge as Michael Jackson has been, first of all? Second of all, who else really uses the military as a part of their image the way he did? So, I mean, I guess if you did Beyonce in a different, kind of like in formation, how she kind of allied herself with blackness, you know, I feel like it fits her. Other than that, this, not really. 
So that covers some of the artwork used to promote the album, but there's also the single that was used to promote the album. And first up was Scream, a duet with his sister, Janet Jackson. And it's the first time we hear Michael Jackson on a Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis produced track. And of course, everybody knows the most expensive music video of all time, $7 million. Samar, how big was Scream when it hit? <laughs> You're talking to the oldie here. I should pick you up on that. If Mark Romani caught you saying that it was the most expensive video ever made, he gets very kind of touchy about that, or he did get very touchy about that on Twitter. Is it not true? Well, everyone seems to think it's true. I think he basically says it's like a Sony music myth that they use that as some sort of kind of promotional thing. But he's convinced it's not true. When that came out, there was a few kind of gimmicky things happening at the time. So when it came out, it's the full name of the single is something like Scream, open brackets, duet between Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson, close brackets. And that's the actual title of the song. It's not just Scream by itself. And for some reason, they wanted to have that. I think it's, it, it kind of put it in some sort of record book as like the longest uh, it's, name for a single. Well, it's a genius strategy, isn't it? To use Janet Jackson. I think it's a worthy question. And Michael Jackson coming off onto the scene off of those allegations in 1995, who needed that collaboration more, Michael or Janet, in your opinion? Yeah, well, that was the story at the time that MJ was basically clinging onto his sister's coattails who had, you know, she was riding high. She had just finished her Janet World Tour, which was super successful. The Janet album was a massive success. And Janet was like Ricky was saying about Michael, that the perception of Michael was that he'd been distancing himself and kind of disappearing from view in terms of that, his connection with the black community. Janet seemed to have a different kind of career trajectory from the Rhythm Nation album where, you know, it was very socially conscious. And then you go to the Janet album and there's a duet with Chuck D. She was always kind of seen slightly differently from Michael in the black American community. Yeah, there was the belief that he needed her much more than she needed him. I remember actually when it was premiered in England on Capital Radio and listening to it the first time and thinking, that isn't the song I was expecting Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson to put together. <laughs> I was just expecting something so much more Janet album sounding as opposed to what it was, which is much more Rhythm Nation album sounding. And the background of it is that Jimmy Jam apparently had two songs that he was going to offer Michael to record. One of them was Scream, the other was Runaway, which was much more laid back. And, you know, it's a song that Janet eventually recorded for her Greatest Hits album. I think we've got the man on here who knows all about that, Mr. John Cameron. <laughs> yeah, well, my, uh, my love for Jam and Lewis is certainly no secret. And certainly at this point, they had firmly broken away from the, the Minneapolis sound that they, along with Prince, of course, had perfected during the 80s. What stands out about this track for me, though, is is Janet's unique vocal performance. It's not unlike Black Cat or What About, but it does have a, a very unique quality to it that we haven't really heard her do elsewhere. But also from a production standpoint, I mean, this, this song, so it samples Sly and the Family Stone's Thank You, that's as one of the guitars. Then there's another guitar sample that I've never quite been able to pick up, but it's definitely from somewhere then it's built around a loop of the knowledge. It has an in-the-closet in sample, which is used as one of the hi-hats. It has a vocal sample from Janet Jackson's Runaway. This is just an incredible amalgamation of digital instrumentation and, and samples from here, there, and everywhere, and 
it's really quite amazing and a real testament to uh, Steve Hodge and Bruce Wadian that were able to take what Jam and Lewis had, had put together and make it into something more... Well, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty decent song, I think we all agree. But not only the album version, the remixes are absolutely incredible. Of course, we have the Flight Time mix, which was on Blood on the Dance Floor, and the strings from that remix were actually supposed to be on the album version, but were eventually taken off. And the Naughty by Nature mix, which expands on that police brutality and, and dare I say, fake news subject matter of the original song. And shout out to Dave Jam Hall's extended mix as well. It's just, yeah, everything about this song is just tremendous to me. For me, it's hard to separate the music video from the song when I hear the song. And I feel like it was a perfect kind of introduction to angry Michael Jackson you know, in a way that we hadn't really seen in Dangerous or Bad or anything he'd done before. Obviously, he'd been through a lot of shit, and I feel like this was the perfect introduction into the album. Perfect lead single. Ricky? I don't know. I feel like it's hard to really appreciate completely. I mean, obviously, it's thumping, and I mean, it's fast, it's it's electric, but it's like, I feel like there are a lot of elements in the song that you don't <clears throat> hear that well. Especially for me, it's the bass in the studio version. I like I hear it better watching the history tour. But also, mm. I feel like it's a vocal performance from MJ that personifies his, you know, vocal change up to that point. It's you know, it's vicious. It's raspy. I mean, it's he dives deeper into his throat than he ever really did before. Or really after that, and the harmonies I think are amazing. It's impossible to really tell him apart from Janet in a lot of places, even on the uh, you know the whoop. You know, that type of thing. It was a perfect opener to that era. And obviously I wasn't around for it, but to give you some type of idea just how huge it was, it leaked a few weeks before it was scheduled to come out. And it still made the first ever debut on the Billboard at number five, which Michael then broke a few months later with You're Not Alone, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it's an amazing track. One of the things that's a real kind of staple of Michael's is he's able to record a song, something like, say, for example, Leave Me Alone. And if you listen to the lyrics, the lyrics are basically like a love song. He's singing about a girl. But the chorus will be something that is so specific to him. Do you know what I mean? So when we watch the video to Leave Me Alone, it's Michael escaping from the tabloids. It's Michael escaping from journalists and paparazzi. The lyrics are kind of slightly more vague in that sense. He's talking about, you know, having problems with a girlfriend. Then he's singing to her about Leave Me Alone or whatever. And it's very similar throughout Michael's career. There's lots of songs like that where the title of this song, Scream, and then, you know, the chorus, stop. Because <laughs> whenever I sing it, I, I sing it, stop fucking with me. It makes me want to scream. Um, and that is very personal to Michael. But then they'll, he'll drop something into the song, which is universal and everyone else can kind of connect to. And there's the moment, the bridge, when Janet is singing, oh my God, you know, I turned on the TV, can't believe what I saw on the TV. And there's the news reporter who, whose voice is in the background. You can't actually make it out and you've got to have had it read out to you or someone's got to have to point it out to you. And the news reporter behind Janet's bridge reads out a news report. And, you know, we're talking about the relevance of Michael Jackson's music and how timeless it is. And the news reporter, he reads out, he says, a man has been brutally beaten to death by police after being wrongfully identified as a robbery suspect. The man was an 18-year-old black male. And that's the news reporter buried deep in, in the kind of audio, 
which you which you wouldn't pick out. So if you were listening to watching that on MTV for the first time, as people did, and you'll see that little guy on the screen when Janet's talking, you wouldn't decipher exactly what he was saying. That's such a genius kind of move by Michael because it's him premiering a massive video that he knows everyone's going to see and dropping something in there that people like us 25 years later will say, wasn't that a genius move? <laughs> and it's consistent with, for example, when he speaks of they don't care about us, he says, I'm talking about myself as the victim. I just wanted to say about that, actually, it's, it's consistent with Michael's previous work as well. Like from years and a decade earlier, you know, when Michael recorded the Bad album, there's that interview, I think it's Ebony magazine, and he's asked about the inspiration for the Bad single. Michael said he was at home one day and he was reading, he'd either seen it on the news or he was reading uh, a magazine and he, he'd read about this boy who'd had got beaten up by kids or something. Anyway, the actual story was, the inspiration came from a story about a kid called Edmund Perry. When he's playing Daryl in the bad video, that story has been inspired by the, the story of Edmund Perry. And Edmund Perry was this genius black kid in Harlem who had just graduated honors student, had got a scholarship to go to Stanford University. He'd been to one of the most prestigious schools in America. And uh, there was an altercation somewhere and he was shot dead by a plainclothes policeman. I think he was about 17 or 18 at the time. I mentioned that just to kind of connect all of Michael's work. You know, what happened on screen isn't isolated. It wasn't just Michael trying to be connected and trying to be down. It was connected to previous work of his. It's as if to almost represent that he's almost no exception as a black man in a lot of ways, that he is the same victimhood that they have to face in society. He faces too, even at his level of success. I know Taj has mentioned, and I know people have spoken about Michael being an empath and that he could see himself in other people's stories. You know, you had the inspiration for bad being Edmund Perry. Then you have him talking about an 18 year old being killed by the police in Scream. And then fast forward to Invincible, who, and you know, he, he dedicated Invincible to another black kid in, in Norway who was killed, Benjamin Harmonson, who was a friend of uh, Omar Batty, I think. And he was killed by neo-Nazis in, in Norway. He dedicated the whole album to him. So these things were not disconnected. It wasn't Michael trying to kind of be down with after being kind of distant. It was consistently in his work. Scream is a great introduction to what is the history album in a lot of ways, because the history album in my opinion, that the second disc in particular, isn't meant to be as calculated as a product, so to speak, as maybe previous albums were. Where in this album, Michael is not afraid to speak quite directly songs like Tom Stedden, for example, in a way that Michael Jackson would never have, truly hadn't, at least not on his albums. And Scream is sort of the explanation. I'm angry. And I'm, I'm going to scream. It's not just on this single. It's going to be this whole fucking disc. Get ready. It's probably going to be the rest of my career. And in a lot of ways, it was. Very next track, They Don't Care About Us. First of all, this was the third single from history. Am I correct there, everybody? I think so. And what I find particularly interesting about this one is that it is on the back of the History Volume 2 DVD VHS set with pride. It says... Uh, includes They Don't Care About Us, the number one most requested video on black entertainment television. Let's talk about They Don't Care About Us. What are we hearing? John Cameron, what do we hear in They Don't Care About Us? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not really sure what genre to categorize this under. I mean, the beat is kind of hip-hop, military style, but then you have that rock bridge and a gospel choir to, to back it up. It's as 
amazing as it is kind of odd. I mean, it was worked on initially during the Dangerous Sessions, although according to Brad Buxer, who co-produced the song, he was never played an earlier version, so it was obviously one that Michael had kept in the back of his mind. And at this point, I must uh, give a a shout-out to Bryce Najjar's book, uh, Making History, which is an amazing collection of interviews with people that that worked on the album, including Brad Buxer. Um, there's the, the, the choir is, is also an absolute highlight, and there's a, there's a lot of uh, unused choir pieces as well, which you'll hear in the Love to Infinity mixes and uh, the Immortal mix as well. It would be absolutely amazing to get a, a kind of a, an uncut version of the, of the whole track. Um, it's a shame there's not a... a an anniversary of history coming up. Otherwise, it might be a good opportunity to release a, a special edition. But um, I think this will end up being Michael's most iconic song going forward. Uh, while there are aspects of the song that that are personal, the lyrics are ambiguous enough to apply to pretty much any movement in which there's a they and an us. And uh, obviously, we've we, we're seeing that now and have seen it previously. Yeah, this is one of my favorite songs. And I feel like it's the first time we really saw Michael be blatantly political. You know, fans always say, you know, oh, he did the Panther dance and he did, you know, the tribute to the Black Panthers at the Super Bowl with the flag and everything. But that's one of the things that's brilliant, but also kind of frustrating about Michael is that you kind of have to dig and dig and then you find all these like hidden gems with everything. So it's easy to kind of overlook stuff he's done because it's not obvious but with they don't care about us it was in your face like he's there you know for the video you know having tossing tables in a prison and starting a riot or i guess riot you hit a great point nobody's talking about those things because we're talking about his nose and wigs and and personal lives and and imagine how frustrating it would have been for that man ricky i would say it is a very hip-hop influenced track with you know the touches of rock and gospel but um he's trying to let people know that he's still one of us he's not we've always known him as a humble person he's he's showing us that that you know I, this could happen to me just as much as it happens to you guys even though i am more or less in a more privileged place i mean he makes it personal he's like you know he kind of talks about his experience with the police in 93 when he says you know i have a wife and two children who love me i'm the victim of police brutality you know this has happened to me just like i've seen it happen to you know, thousands of people across the country that look like me. So there's that that I feel is very important. He's putting himself in that us. I mean, as he put it down, it's, I am the black man, I am the Jew, you know, I am speaking for all oppressed people when I made this song. But it matters the spaces in which he decided to record the video also. Through a prison in Queens, I mean, prison, you know, disproportionate policing of black men, and women is still a major problem in the United States today. Black people disproportionately being in prison for lesser offenses, being killed over traffic stops and other various things. And his presence in Brazil, where he decided to do this video in the favelas amongst all these people. And the government didn't want that because it made them look bad, but the significance of that is that that is a lasting impact of slavery in that region. And it's something that, you know, you probably wouldn't really get if you don't know the history. It's just as furious as Scream. It's just as, it kind of speaks more to the hurt of his pride, you know, the hurt of his dignity, you know, the lasting impact of, you know, those dehumanizing experiences he's had. He's going deeper into that. 
connecting it more to everybody else around him. You mentioned the fact that there's two short films, and I think the mere fact that there are two short films is the strangest piece of irony. Because here's your record label. Uh, presumably, we have two short films, by the way, because the record label rejected the one he actually wanted, the prison version, the one that speaks to the disproportionate levels of black men and minorities in American prisons. And the record label, who's supposed to care about his artist, who's supposed to care about us, doesn't, and forced him to make another version. It's almost hilarious. Isn't that right, Samar? We mentioned Mark Romanek talking about Scream earlier. Mark Romanek gives an interview that is, I think, is still available on YouTube where he's talking about having a phone call with Tommy Matola and Tommy Matola screaming at him on the phone about the budget for the video. And unbeknownst to Mark Romanek, Michael Jackson was also on this conference call. Michael, he'd made so much money for Sony. It'd been such a massive presence for that company. And for him to still have to kind of almost kind of go cap in hand for budgets for music videos, which are still iconic to this day, and they're still timeless to this day. It's almost, un well, it is, like you say, it's just unbelievable. And there's a great irony, you know, when he later sings, they don't care about us. You could write books about this. <laughs> you could write books about this song and about the short films. There's so much genius in the song. And like Ricky had said earlier, that it's very personal. But Michael also takes the personal and kind of expands it for everyone. So, you know, when he sings about the American government, he's saying your proclamation, your emancipation proclamation promised us free liberty. He takes the personal and he kind of expands it out to the community. It's just such a work of genius. And then, as Ricky said, you know, where it's filmed, the Brazilian version where it's filmed, it was filmed in the slave uh, quarters, like where the slaves hundreds of years earlier, the black slaves in Brazil had been whipped and tortured in the actual square where Elodum kind of congregate and they play their drums. Who would think of that? I mean, how imagine the depth of knowledge you would have to have about black history to go to that square out of all of the places in the world. They could have filmed that video anywhere. In America, they could have filmed that any video anywhere. But they went to that particular spot in the world to film that music video and reclaimed that spot. He's standing there with Elodum, the musical group, and tons and tons of people, children, singing and dancing and singing that they don't care about us. And years later, I think Snoop Dogg and Pharrell Williams did a video in Brazil and kind of replicate the kind of whole drumming section. And you can't help but think of Michael Jackson. That's always associated, for me anyway, it's always associated with Michael Jackson. That is reclamation. That is someone taking that spot and saying, you know, this is what happened here. So much is happening in the world now that it, we can understand the value that people put on monuments and structures and statues. I, I'm not sure if you guys have seen like, what's been happening over here. Like protesters in this country have been tearing down statues of old slave owners. It's what people perceive as valuable, what people place value upon. And Michael went to that square. Like I said, he could have gone anywhere else. He went to that square and he reclaimed it. And he stood there, said, they don't care about us. I mean, it's just magnificent. Who would have the kind of gall to do that? You'd have to have so much balls to do that, <laughs> you know, and knowing that the rest of the world is going to be watching you. And to sell it as a mainstream popular culture product in America. Pretty phenomenal. And to still be kind of considered as a pop star. I mean, it's just outrageous. The lyrical content of the song, you know, he talks about, am I invisible because you ignore me? And that's clearly a reference to the Ralph Ellison book, The Invisible Man. It's just, like I said, you could write a whole book about this one song, one song of, what, 16. 
<laughs> the man was just a phenomenon. I think this is what's so frustrating about Michael Jackson is every time he had an interview, he was talking about so much nonsense that we didn't need to hear about, you know, because I would have rather had him sit down and, you know, explain the lyrics. You know, he always said, oh, you know, it fell from the heavens and then that's all they care about. You know, I wish he could have actually sat down and explained these things, why he chose for it to be in a prison, why he chose, you know what I mean? Or even all the shots, like the news footage that's in the prison version from the protests and all these things. Like, did you choose these clips yourself? I just wish we could have actually heard him really talk about it. Same, you know, I feel like, I just want to say that I think it's amazing how he originally filmed this video in a prison and it's, you know, deemed too controversial by Sony. And so he takes it to another location that's even more controversial and that's the one they're okay <laughs> with. I, I just find that very yeah. ironic, but also it speaks to just how intelligent and woke that he truly was and how much some people take that for granted about him that he was in the biggest position in the world as a superstar and he un he understood just about what all people were going through and he cared about that he wanted to show the world this he wanted to give all of this a platform as big as his own i just feel like that's amazing i just want to say that in many ways it's almost a uh, incidental piece of high art meaning you know, there's deeper meaning because I was an 11 year old kid and I saw that Brazilian video. I had no idea the location and even the images that I was seeing were commentary about the political situation. I'm an 11 year old kid in America. I don't, I have no awareness. It, to me, it's just my hero dancing in the streets with some really cool exotic people. And by the way, that's why he got away with it. That's why, because Michael and perhaps Sony knew that to most Americans, the message is above them. And only to be uncovered by us as a generation, personally, a generation later. Uh, pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. And that, I think, in, in, in context, almost makes that decision a form of high art, which there's going to be a lot of in, in history. I mean, it's kind of over the head of lots of people. It go, also goes over the head of, like, the, the suits who work at Sony. Charles Thompson, who comes on here regularly, he will say that it's easier to sell Michael Jackson lunchboxes with the girl is mine on there than it is to have, like, stop fucking with me on a school lunchbox because they're trying to sell to the lowest common denominator market. I mean, the stuff they could be doing with they don't care about us now. Like I, I think I came on an episode a few years ago and said, that's something that sh they should have given to the Black Lives Matter community. It's not going to cost them anything. And they can use that in videos or promotional stuff or whatever, but they do nothing. They sit back and do nothing because they're just not politically minded. And, you know, it doesn't serve their interests to be politically engaged. We can't forget that Spike Lee was a director who was one of the most iconic black directors in American history. Hands down. But there, there is a sad truth to They Don't Care About Us and America. Scream, the debut single from history, debuts at number five, ultimately makes it to number one on the Billboard Hot 100. You Are Not Alone, the second single from history, debuts at number one, a record never seen before. The follow-up single, They Don't Care About Us, essentially doesn't even dent on the U.S. charts. Perhaps unbeknownst to even Michael at the time, but now that you know he's been gone for 10 years and we can look at his career in perspective as a whole, we realize that They Don't Care About Us may have effectively ended his career in America until 2009, legitimately. Pretty sad, and a pretty sad testament to how big the problem really was and perhaps still is in America today. I'm not sure it ended his career per se. I mean, I feel like history is very polarizing. I mean, for the casual music listener. I mean, it's it's just it's just not what you expect to hear from Michael Jackson. 
if you go a little further to Invincible, I mean, Invincible was very suppressed. I mean, Butterflies hit number 14 off of just radio airplay. So, I mean, I feel like, I, I just feel like it's a bit of a stretch to say it ended his career per se. But yeah, that's all. Of course, I agree. But clearly, the streak that he was riding off of his entire career ended from a charting perspective, from a radio airplay perspective, they don't care about us, may have been too bold of a move for America at the time in a lot of ways because he remained highly relevant globally past that point. Earth Song was a number one just a few months later all over the world, not in the United States. Folks, we're on to track three, Stranger in Moscow. John Cameron, what do we hear on Stranger in Moscow? I think we hear an indisputable masterpiece. It's hard to talk about this song without acknowledging Brad Bucks's uncredited contributions. He really facilitated one of the greatest songs of Michael's career in this. And of course, the first introduction to this composition was on the Sonic the Hedgehog game. This was uh, one of the earliest songs worked on when the project was initially going to be just a, a greatest hits with a couple of bonus tracks. The full instrumental actually goes for 7 minutes and 50 seconds, and again, it would be another amazing bonus track on a, on a special edition, because Brad Bucks's synth work on this is just, it's so ethereal. You really get into the soundscape of this song, with of course Michael's hard-panned beatboxing being sampled throughout. My favourite remix for this would be T's Light AC Mix, which of course puts the beautiful acoustic guitar on display that's so buried in the album version. That to me is as an essential version of the track as the album is. Yeah, I kind of touched on what I wanted to say about that it came from the Sega game, which is kind of hilarious because it's such a deep song. You know, it talks about loneliness, isolation, depression. You know, he always told the story about how he was alone in his hotel room and there was a sea of fans outside and he felt caged in and that's when the lyrics came to him. And I don't know if this makes sense to you guys, but this song kind of reminds me of Who Is It? If you have really good headphones on, like the sound is so three-dimensional and you really get like wrapped up into the sound of the song. I don't know, it's, it's one of my favorites. It's interesting what Marie said actually about who was it. It kind of chimes in what John said earlier about ethereal kind of sound of it. What I'm just remembering now about the whole history album is that it's not one that non-fans are so familiar with. So it it is like a kind of Michael Jackson diehard fans do kind of look at, hold it quite precious, and it is quite precious to all of us. And what Marie said, yeah, not just the lyrical content, but the kind of there's a haunting nature to the whole song which just kind of accentuates what, whatever the lyrical content is. And again, there's stuff that Michael buries deep into the song. Late in the song, there's the audio of the Russian KGB interrogation. Again, you know, it's something we talk about 25 years later. And I've got the translation of what the KGB interrogator says on the radio. He said, why have you come from the West? Confess to steal the great achievements of the people, the accomplishment of the workers. There's a really interesting artistic theme that runs throughout the History album, and it's very kind of European. It's these kind of bases in Russian artwork. So I always thought if you look at the cover of the History album with the statue of Michael Jackson set to the red clouds, well, there's a very famous painting of Lenin. Search on Google. It's a very famous Lenin poster, which has the words, Lenin lived, Lenin lives, Lenin will live. And... I can't help but imagine that Michael modeled the history album cover on that poster because the pose, the color scheme, the kind of 
positioning of Michael's body, it's really hard to imagine that Michael didn't marry those two things together. And then we'll talk later, another song in particular, where Michael references Russian propaganda videos. And that's really interesting. That's not something we ever talk about, about Michael, like where he gets that. Why would he have put that KGB interrogation thing in there? That's so interesting. That's such an interesting thing for him to do. I've always actually wondered the same thought, Samar, is if he is also wondering if he's victim to maybe the movements happening in the 80s against, you know, the communist bloc. And if, as an American export, he was also sort of a, in some way, a tool for American propaganda. It's, it's, there's very little discussion to support that from him, but it's an interesting little speculation I've, I've had for a, a little bit now. It is fascinating. Ricky? Stranger Moscow, it's probably the best song other than Billie Jean that Michael Jackson ever made. I mean, it's ominous. It's poetic. It reminds me of human nature in a lot of ways because it seems like every single element of the song builds upon itself, builds off of each other. I mean, it's it's like a storm on the horizon coming closer and closer as the song progresses. It's a great example of Michael's voice being able to communicate emotion in a way that few other artists, if any, are able to do. I mean, he sounds sad. He sounds lost. He's almost like a ghost, and accompanying his response harmonies are just as ominous, just as eerie. It's like he's singing out of the void into an even deeper void. It's, it's, it's captivating in such a different way than Billie Jean, but it seems to capture and encapsulate everything he was feeling, everything he was seeing while he was there in Moscow during the Dangerous Tour. I would say that it's probably... His best use of imagery, of poetry, in his music. It's just as much of that in the, the music itself as much as the lyrics also. I don't know. It's just a masterpiece, like they said before. It's an incredible aural production masterpiece. And we already know it's an audiobiographical masterpiece, and he has always described it as an audiobiographical song. And still, there might yet be more beneath the surface. When you take a look at the content lyrically, again, that KGB agent interaction, some of that imagery describing the shadows of the Soviet era, you start to wonder if, you know, there's really another layer here. That honestly is the icing on the cake that you would have to dig deep to truly understand. I mean, he is a stranger in Moscow, literally. I mean, given what was going on at the time he wrote the song, I mean, he's seen as this polarizing figure, especially, I mean, at worst, a monster at the, in the United States at this point in 1993. He's more welcome in places such as Moscow or London or Australia, and not so much as he is back home, but he's still not at home in Moscow. He's still considered a stranger. He's still considered a foreigner. It's like he has no place where he truly belongs, and I feel like that you know, a little spoken word at the end is meant to signify that, to really push that point across. People are still looking at him with a strange eye and saying, you know, why are you really here? What are you trying to take from us? You're not one of us. Truly, I was so young living through it, but uh, my understanding is that uh, Michael Jackson, as a representative of the West in that particular relationship with Moscow, but also with the world as an American, I think is very interesting. I think there's the American view of Michael Jackson, which 
rides the roller coaster of however the media wants to portray him, unless you're a black American, of course. And that is the truth, where he is, for the most part, consistently seen as the hero that uh, at least I believe him to be. But globally, it's sort of ironic. He gets a bit of a fair shot in some regard, but also he's kind of almost more deeply misunderstood in a lot of ways from a deeper consciousness. Back in the mid-80s, Michael was celebrated as an all-American hero, wasn't he? Uh, you remember him going to uh, the White House in 1984 and being presented as this kind of great all-American icon. That changed and shifted very, very quickly around the mid-80s, actually. There's a letter you can find on the internet. Ron Reagan's press people are trying to get Michael Jackson to come back to the White House because they know it's a good photo op. And one of Ron Reagan's um, advisors writes this letter, and this, the letter is actually available online because everything has to be declared. And he's really pissed off about the, the fact that Michael is being invited again to the White House. One of the lines, I think, is something along the lines of, all the kids love Prince nowadays anyway. <laughs> so the American establishment understood the value of celebrity, and they understood like the value of propelling particular celebrities. They've had everyone at the White House over the years since then. All the inaugurations, you'll always have you know, celebrities kind of being rolled out to show their support. So it is quite interesting, actually. And it is quite interesting how Michael went from all-American hero to whatever he later became. Sometimes we forget that the king of pop is actually just a black kid from Gary, Indiana. And not just that, but also because his life is so spectacular, we forget that he's just like any other American who would have grown up during the Cold War. And to find yourself in your mid-30s feeling alone and isolated in fucking Moscow had to have been an absolute surreal feeling for that man. And he was probably reflecting on how he got there, right? It's not just a loneliness song in a dramatic setting. It's also a song about nationhood. He's feeling abandoned by his nation. And he has served his nation so well, he's probably thinking, you know? And, um, you know, how sad is it? How sad is it to, to feel so lonely that your country has disowned you and you're waking up to find yourself alone in a place that you were told for most of your life was the enemy. I just want to give a shout out because I love the music video so much. I'm embarrassed to say it, but it took me like years, probably a decade to even appreciate all the little nuances in the music video. Because when I was a kid, I was just watching. I was like, oh, he's wearing a coat. He's walking down the street. He looks sad. All right. But then later on, I was like, oh, my God, he's walking in a different tempo than everybody else. Look at all the close-ups and the slow motion shots of the rain and the, you know, the coin that gets tossed to the homeless guy on the street and and the glass breaking from the baseball. And, and I think it's criminally underrated. I think there's some kind of references to previous work in that. So the coin toss in Stranger in Moscow video is, uh, see, even now when I say it, in, in England, we say Stranger in Moscow, not Moscow. The coin toss is something that we've seen in the previous Michael Jackson videos. We've seen in the Billie Jean video, the ball smashing through the window we've seen in the Jam short film. All the music videos, I guess, except for Scream, he was dressed really laid back in a way. If you look at like, they don't care about us. He's just wearing, you know, jeans and a t-shirt and childhood. He's just wearing this like raggedy, dirty shirt in the forest and Earth Song and, you know, you're not alone, he's naked. But, you know, it's, I think it's, I don't know if it was a conscious choice 
you know, appearance wise that everything was kind of more scaled back. It's a very interesting aesthetic for the King of Pop, for sure. It's probably his most man on the street look, normal look, if you want to say it, which is, now that I say it, it's probably intentional, right? Stranger in Moscow, and here he is looking like a normal guy. Hey, it's a personal album, but he's also trying to show how much he identifies with regular people, how, you know, quote unquote, normal he actually is. And I feel like it kind of, it's supposed to go deeper into the, you know, the actual songs of trying to place himself amongst us. Earth song, I mean, he's trying to get people to see what's going on. I mean, not to drop ahead. I mean, childhood, he's trying to present himself as a, you know, I'm just a regular person. This is what drives me. This is why I am the way I am. This is what I'm actually just a regular person. I mean, they don't care about us. He's amongst the people. He's just another person. He's just another black person. Okay, guys. So we talked about a lot so far and we're only at track three, but let's take our first break to chat about our new sponsor here at the MJ cast. I'm sure you've heard of them. They're called Audible. They're the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks on the internet. And maybe after this discussion, you're wanting to be a little bit more like Michael. You're wanting to study up on the Cold War or propaganda art or race history in the U.S. Or even if you just want to learn more about the man himself, Audible has got you covered with an audiobook. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. How cool is that? You can download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. The app is free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets, and you can listen across devices without losing your spot. You can keep your credits for up to a year and use them to binge listen whenever you want. These guys have so many titles that if you listen to every one of them, you'd be listening for more than three centuries. That's why I suggest you dial up the narration speed. You get more in that way. Get your time back, folks. At home, while cooking, while driving, while at the gym, get your learn on. And look how easy this is. Head on over to audibletrial.com slash the MJCast to register for a one-month free trial. You're going to love it. It's so easy. Check out the robust list of Michael Jackson-related titles and listen to one absolutely free. Head on over to audibletrial.com slash the MJCast right now and sign up. Thank you, Audible, for sponsoring the MJCast. Okay, so so far we have Scream, where Michael Jackson comments on all the ways he's been used by the media. We have They Don't Care About Us, where Michael Jackson comments on all the ways he's been used in the race wars. And we have Stranger in Moscow, where Michael Jackson comments on loneliness and maybe all the ways he's been used in the Cold War. Now, track four, we have Michael Jackson saying, I'm taking no shit. John Cameron, this time around. So, History is probably my favorite Michael Jackson album, but I don't think it's perfect. I think there's three, maybe even as many as five songs that you could cut from this and and have something really solid. This time around is one of them. It's quite similar to Money and the way it's structured and the way it's performed, and even, I suppose, to an extent, the message. But it really doesn't need to be on here. And while the chorus is very Michael Jackson, lyrics like this time around, I'm taking no shit, just don't really work for me. Perhaps it's my uh, general aversion to pop stars trying to rap. (laughs) With that said, though, it's produced by Dallas Austin, and I really enjoyed his work with Madonna on Bedtime Stories the year before. 
Apparently this was one of 13 instrumentals he brought to the project, so I'd be very curious to hear what the others sound like, because this one is not... It, it, yeah, it, it's not, uh, not my jam. And it's certainly interesting that it was released as a single as well, which I think is probably more reflective of it very much being a product of its time. But uh, someone please chime in with some positivity. I think it does check a commercial box that it had to check in the era. It's definitely, you know, the Michael Jackson version of sort of a gangster rap song, which of course, you know, coming off albums like The Chronic of the era, like, you know, Dr. Dre's The Chronic. Let me say, actually, this time around is actually one of my favorites from the album. It's, um, it's probably the most hip hop sound on the album, and not just because the notorious B.I.G. coming off Ready to Die was a guest on the song. But it's, you know, it's the beat. It's, it's, it's dark. It has a sense of, I want to say, hostility almost of something bad is on the horizon or something dark is brewing. Just the beat itself, constructed by Dallas Austin, which is awesome. But the vocal delivery is what makes this song to me. It's, it's rhythmic. It's venomous. And he just makes you feel him. It's, it's, like, he, it's like he snarls everything he says this time around <laughs> it's just infectious for me and then he comes in with the chorus which is pretty simple he really thought that and but the harmonies are so lush that it just gives it a whole extra kick of rhythm it's 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 just amazing and then as gangster or hard or tough as you want to consider Michael Jackson. I feel like this is probably his best effort, but it's Biggie Smalls who actually gives the song that gangster edge, but it's Michael Jackson's aggressive, aggravated vocal delivery that makes it believable, at least for me. I feel like it's probably the best use of hip-hop on the album, in my opinion. I'm going to say something offensive. I, <laughs> I think Biggie's part is my favorite part in this song. I don't know. I never listened that much to this song. And something about the tempo didn't like vibe well with me. It's a good song, but I think like my favorite line, which I thought was a very bold line that he said was somebody's out to use me. They really want to use me and then falsely accuse me, which I think was an interesting line to put in that song. That is cool. It really is Michael rapping. And you know what else I love ever since I was a kid, like 11 years old, that laka, 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 laka always stuck out to me that, that Michael would, whatever you call that, he would articulate it as a rhythmic tick. This is one of my favorite songs on the album. So like when John was talking earlier about how they, this could have been one of the songs that was cut, I mean, there's so much about this record. Bear in mind what Ricky was saying, that Biggie Smalls was like massive at the time, the biggest hip-hop artist around at the time, I imagine. And Michael teaming up with him was just a phenomenal kind of collaboration in itself. Correct me if I'm wrong, this is one of the songs that kind of got Michael in a bit of legal trouble because of the lyrics. What Maria was saying was, you know, there's a, the lyric about being falsely accused. And I think this was one of the lyrics that Evan Chandler, Geordie Chandler's dad, took great offence to because the lyrics, we obviously kind of are aware that there was some sort of kind of connection to allegations that had taken place a couple of years prior. And Michael because of the terms of the settlement, he wasn't allowed to talk publicly about the terms of the settlement or about the case or anything. He, wa he wasn't actually, I don't think he was allowed to declare his innocence because of, he wasn't allowed to discuss the, the terms of the case. 
So obviously he put lots of stuff in his songs, which, as we'll speak later, he kind of pretended he was saying something else when he was actually addressing the allegations. So he could say things in the song about being falsely accused and this time around I'm taking no shit or whatever. The Biggest Smalls rap is amazing. I remember reading at the time, I think it was probably in the Vibe magazine, the Michael Jackson cover story. I think Biggie's interviewed in that edition of the magazine and he talks about his mum's pride in him working with Michael Jackson because that was acknowledgement to her that her son had made it, which is a beautiful thing. Also, Biggie's rap is prophetic. If you listen to it now, he's rapping about things always missing. Maybe it could be my friends. And you think about what happened to Michael and the people who sold him short, friends who sold him out posthumously. There's great prophecy in that. There's a lyric in there in Biggie's rap. You know, he references the N-word when referring to Michael. It was something that Spike Lee had picked up, that when Sony or whoever was told to censor alleged anti-Semitic lyrics from they don't care about us. They weren't told to kind of edit the N-word from uh, this time around. And Spike Lee gave interviews afterwards saying, that's fascinating, isn't it? That we had to censor that one, but you couldn't censor the other one. And out of all of the tracks on the album, it's really, I think, there's a couple of others, but it's really the only one you'd imagine being played in a club. Even now, 25 years later, it still sounds fresh and you could play it in a club and it still, it'll still be banging. Is history the first album with profanities where we hear Michael swearing? I think so, yeah. Well, Dangerous had Damn. Mm. Yeah, I about to say, unless you count Damn on She Drives Me Wild and Dangerous. Yep. I used to have, like, I'd quickly try to mute my boombox right when he says it. And honestly, it, being an 11-year-old boy to hear Michael Jackson say those words, my hero, there was something really badass about it, honestly. And it's, it's a great question to ask, Maria, because, I mean, his audience was kids. Like, we're talking about a man, his last project baited the audience with Bart Simpson. But for real, though, I mean, we were a demographic. If you were six or seven years old like myself and he brought you in to his ecosystem through Macaulay Culkin and Bart Simpson by the time history comes out you're going to be 13 or 14 years old and you're going to think this guy's pretty badass so it's a pretty smart move to change his character in that way okay next track and it's a big one Earth Song what a production what a masterpiece John Cameron kick us off on Earth Song well, it's a, another indisputable masterpiece for me. It's it's so powerful. Um, I think this song is best heard on full blast with a, a good subwoofer and just let those choir vocals hit you. Of course, this was initially done in 1988 while Michael was on the Bad Tour. I think he might have been in Austria at the time. Someone correct me if I'm wrong on that. I have heard that version, and it's one of the most beautiful vocal performances I've ever heard from Michael. Again, something else that's got to be released one day. It's, I, I, I can't speak higher enough of it. Then, of course, it was worked on again in 1989 with Bill Bottrell, and, of course, that's the infamous version where the end vocals are in falsetto rather than him yelling. And then, of course, the yelling version comes in, in 1994, 95, which is what we hear on History. And another version that doesn't really get talked about is in This Is It, which I'm not talking about the performance itself, but in the video that was made for it. It's an expanded orchestra version, and there are also some of Michael's background vocals in that, which I think might be sourced from the 1988 version. So if you're not familiar with that, then look it up on YouTube or your Blu-ray. I want to give honourable mention to Harney's remix, which I know is a little bit contentious among MJ fans, but it's really quite revolutionary in that House was 
coming into its prime around this period, and Hani actually did a bootleg remix and took it to Sony, and then they approved it, which is quite remarkable and is actually the success story of quite a few house remixes that became big. How anyone could take a song like Earth Song and, and make it danceable is, is, is quite an achievement. You know what I love about the Hani remix? First of all, one of the cruelest things about Earth Song is that it begins with that unbelievable, gorgeous piano riff, I think you could call it. You know the one I'm talking about. Mm. It even says, and this is it, you start that piano. It begins with, but it only gives it to you once. Yeah. It's too cruel. But Hani's club remix puts that on repeat. And it's so, I mean, it puts you into a trance. That that melody is incredible. And I think Elton John has, a, I think, once quoted to saying that it was one of the most beautiful piano melodies ever written. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting, actually. The, the 1988 version is all piano. So I think that would be right up your alley. I believe it's piano from, from beginning to end and just some multi-tracked vocals. Yeah, quite beautiful. I, I so hope that gets released one day. Wow, incredible. I didn't even know this existed. That's incredible. It's interesting, actually, what James said about Alton John had said it was... Uh... Yeah, what did he say? I got, I, got it. I, I got the quote wrong. He said something about that, right? Well, I don't know. Why I find it interesting is because if you listen to Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word, I think it's Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word, the intro piano to that is almost identical to the intro to Earth Song, so much so that I, I kind of always felt that Michael lifted it from uh, Elton. So quite interesting if Elton had said that. I could be wrong. Forgive me if I am. No, I'm sure you're, you're not, but it's just Elton's not very forthcoming usually with praise for other artists. <laughs> That's for damn sure. <laughs> One thing that's so kind of weird that I never even thought about about this song is that the chorus has no words. He's just humming through the entire chorus. And I don't think he's ever done that in any other song. Well, certainly not released, but there's I'm So Blue as well. And it's a, it's a testament to, to his harmonies. Yeah, for sure. I've always interpreted that as sort of the chorus is literally almost like the weeping of the earth. That's just my personal interpretation that, you know, it's it's the song. First of all, if you ever put the song in a, in a waveform format, the visualization of that buildup, it almost looks like stages of grief. It goes from like a, a weeping, reflective sorrow to just anger and resentment. And, and And by the way, let's not forget that Michael Jackson is for a long time, for a good portion of his life, it's sort of maybe unknown how long, was the Jehovah's Witness. And of course, I'm sure most of us are aware that Jehovah's Witnesses have a particular obsession, forgive the word, with the end of the world. It is sort of a, you know, apocalyptic, book of revelation, hopeless anthem. In Heal the World, it can still be fixed. In Earth Song, he's given up. Like, it's over. It's over. And, and it's a, a very prophetic thing. And I think in history, we actually see, first of all, and they don't care about us, he even literally says, you know, I hope I look to heaven to fulfill its prophecy. There's an innocence that I think that was lost truly between the period from Dangerous and songs like Heal the World. To even though I know, of course, Earth Song, I think maybe even predates Heal the World in terms of its composition. From the hopeful Heal the World to four years later, it's over, everybody. Sorry. It's your fault too, Earth Song. It's 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 pretty incredible. It kind of reminds me of Purple Rain and the fact it kind of depicts the end of the world, as you were just saying. It's basically like it's basically a three part song. You know, it's the intro, then he kind of builds on it a bit, and then there's that operatic ending. I mean, he took a lot of different elements to create this song. I mean, he took blues, he took rock opera 
gospel. So all of this is in the five minutes that are Earth Song. And it kind of all comes together at the, you know, the ending, belting out of this world ad-libs that he gives. I mean, that's kind of operatic. I mean, he's throwing a rock in there. The Andre Crouch Choir is now giving their gospel touch that we've seen on Will You Be There and Man in the Mirror. And it's all depicting the end of life as we know it, the end of the world as we know it. It's, it's beyond the point of no return. And he's kind of reflecting. He's looking back. He's like, how did we get here? Why don't we care about any of these things? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with you? He directly calls out all of these things. He talks about forest trails. He says, with animals, we turn kingdoms into dust. He says, we let children die every day. What about the Holy Land? What about all these people who have died in our wake? All the lives we've destroyed. But all that is depicted, you know, through the music. I feel like what they don't care about us, I feel like it's something that we could also, we could write three or four books about. There's a lot more that went into this five minutes than meets the eye. I feel like it's, it's a song that you have to listen to and listen to and listen to and know a lot more about to understand all the implications that are hidden in it. I mean, he even makes a lot of Bible references in it. At the beginning, it sounds like he's talking to God at first, and then he turns his attention to you know everybody else who's still on the earth. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. It's a lot. Our song is... Simply put, it's it's a masterpiece. I mean, it's it's up there with, you know, the best songs that he crafted from beginning to end. It's kind of interesting how the short film kind of depicts the opposite of what the song is kind of saying. You know, he the lament kind of brings the world back from everything we've seen. It's kind of that heal the world wishfulness kind of being depicted in the video, even though he shows all the devastation up to that point. You're talking about the way it it sort of goes in reverse at the very end of the video. Right. And that's that's the part where in the song that kind of sounds like the end of the world. Instead, in the video, it's like in reverse, you know. Mm, yeah. Almost like salvation in the biblical sense. Speaking of which, Michael Jackson faced quite a bit of public scrutiny for the character he kind of plays in Earth Song. Michael Jackson, the savior. Michael Jackson, the narcissist, it was said. In fact, at the Brit Awards in 1996, he actually faced a bit of humiliation on stage. I I forget his name. Uh, Tell me again, who was that idiot? Jarvis Cocker, lead singer of Pulp. And he moons MJ on stage, right? Well, he jumped on the stage. I don't think he mooned. Well, he didn't take his trousers down anyway, but he kind of simulated mooning and was kicked off. You you couldn't see it on TV. You could only kind of see it later on like a handy cam. Someone's, you know, filmed from the audience somewhere. Complete jackass move. And, you know, years later, you know, I've spoken about it quite a bit, you know, how, actually, it's not just me. Uh, there's a female lead singer of a group at the time. I think her name's Tracy Thorne. I think the group is called Everything But The Girl. In the UK, we were going through a, a musical movement, which was dubbed Britpop at the time. So you had groups like Oasis and Blur, and Pulp were one of the leading groups of the time. And Tracy wrote an article years later after Michael had passed away and talked about the kind of overwhelming whiteness of Britpop and how that episode with Jarvis Cocker going on stage while the only black artist who performed on the night performed summed up the kind of laddish mentality of the British psyche at the time, which is fascinating because if you look years later when Taylor Swift won her award, I think it was the MTV Awards and Kanye West stormed the stage, rightly or wrongly, however you want to kind of depict that, but look at the vilification he received, right? But look at the kind of way Jarvis was celebrated in this country for 
sticking it to the black man on stage. It's moments like that which are really kind of indicative of the society you live in and worrying as well. People do all sorts of things on stage. I mean, he's one of the least offensive kind of performers on stage. The sheer sort of kind of audacity to just storm the stage while the greatest living artist is performing is just outrageous. It's a completely disgusting thing to do. And like I said, if it had been the other way around, if it had been Kanye going on stage while Taylor Swift was doing, you know, winning an award, you just look at the fallout of that. The visuals of her song, um, and I, I mentioned previously, like, you know, the kind of suggestion of kind of MJ's interest in kind of depictions of propaganda films. And it's quite clear that this one is based on the Russian propaganda Ave Maria short film. It's a little propaganda video. It's quite an anti-American propaganda video, actually, which is what's fascinating about the whole KGB interrogation in, uh, in Stranger in Moscow. And... It kind of depicts this kind of dystopian, futuristic world which is being demolished by war. And it will take you three seconds of watching the intro and you'll see Earth Song. You'll see the intro to the Earth Song video. What's also interesting is when Michael performs it live on the History World Tour, there's that moment, isn't there, where he recreates the Tiananmen Square protest where the tank mm. comes on stage and Michael stands mm -hmm. in front of the tank and then... This little girl walks on stage and she walks on stage bearing a little flower, walks up to one of the soldiers on stage and gives him the flower. And he obviously collapses and kind of hugs her and is crying. It's quite a beautiful moment. It's quite an interesting spectacle when you're at Wembley Stadium and, you know, <laughs> there's lots of kind of drunken revelers next to you. It's quite an interesting time. But um, in the video, in the, uh, in the propaganda video, the, the ending is slightly different for that little girl. It's worth watching. It also is quite fascinating that Michael references that. This is fascinating, Smart. There's so many levels of propaganda art on the History Project in general. This is one layer I wasn't even aware existed. This is phenomenal, phenomenal. Plus the fact that religion as quote unquote propaganda art with the imagery of Jesus and the way the children would run up to Michael at the end. I mean, I guess it's sort of, that's more religious art than it is propaganda art per se, but I think it runs deep, man. I think it runs deep. And I think we don't give enough credit to how effective it is for a young man like myself and millions of, of other people all over the world to sort of see that imagery of a Christ-like figure, almost in the flesh. I mean, obviously not literally. For some people, literally, if you got to see him live, there's no way it couldn't have been impactful. There is no way we aren't sitting here 25 years later essentially obsessing over this man's quote-unquote gospel, his story, if it weren't for those images. They indoctrinated us in some way. And thank God it was used for good, it's the same use. It's the, it's the same tactics any propagandist would use. What's interesting is what Maria had said actually earlier about how the chorus doesn't have any lyrics. I'd actually read somewhere Michael had spoken about how he wanted to give the world an anthem. In We Are The World, he gave that anthem. Then he tried to recreate and heal the world. How could he get it to every household in the world? Write a song that doesn't actually have a chorus that is translatable into any language. Anyone can sing that chorus because it doesn't have any lyrics in it. I can't remember who said it. Maybe it was Akon after Michael had passed away. And I think he said it. He said, you know, lots of pop stars, they think in terms of regional sales or national sales or global sales. And he said Michael was thinking in, in terms of kind of universes. And <laughs> like he was thinking like completely whatever limitations we had on ourselves that like he was thinking, you know, in terms of galaxies and universes. And, like, you know, he was yeah. thinking on such a massive scale. Most Western artists are thinking about selling to English-speaking 
audiences. Michael never thought about that. He always thought about how can I reach every single corner of the world? How do you do that? You have a, a song with a chorus that doesn't have any English lyrics in it. Not just geography, my friend, but timetables. He was writing songs for, for future generations that would be just as relevant. You're absolutely right. It wasn't just about contemporary markets and contemporary countries and contemporary. It was about, it was so universal. It spanned across timetables. Like it's pretty incredible, pretty incredible. DS, Dom Sheldon. What's going on there? What is DS? In preparation for our recording today, I decided to read the Wikipedia page for this song, and uh, this kind of stuck out to me. Fred Schuster of the Daily News of Los Angeles described DS as a superb slice of organic funk that will fuel many of the summer's busiest dance floors. I don't know what he was smoking when he wrote that, because I don't frequent dance floors, but I definitely can't imagine this being played on one. While it certainly fits within the context of the album, it is another song I'd probably consider cutting. And I know a lot of casual listeners that are quite turned off by this song for whatever reason. With that said, one of my favourite videos is of Tom Snedden walking into court and having this sung at him by fans. So perhaps its inclusion was worth it just for that little video. It's interesting to hear Michael Jackson call out one individual so directly. I'm not sure we've ever, certainly never on an album, I don't think. Uh, and even in any public work, and it's quite rare in public statements even at that point. I mean, to call out a specific man on a track on the album, he must have had a lot of feelings towards this individual. Who is Dom Sheldon? He's obviously very poorly disguised Santa Barbara DA Thomas Snedden. And it's, it's so un usual to think that Michael Jackson wrote a song dedicated to one particular individual. Casey, a friend of, mutual friend of ours, has been on the show before, Casey Rain. I think he did a short video about this, said it's the ultimate diss track, because imagine rappers have diss tracks for other rappers and singers will have diss tracks for other singers, but imagine taking on the Santa Barbara district attorney <laughs> in song. And he knows that song is going to go worldwide. You know, History was the biggest selling double album, I think, of all time. I think it sold 25 million copies. And people are sitting at home listening to Tom Snedden is a cold man. Tom Snedden is a cold man, literally, like, over and over and over again. I can imagine Michael getting a bit of a kick out of that and finding that really humorous and really funny. And musically, you know, it's it's not one of my favorite songs on the record. It's not one I, I replay that often, but I can see... I'd say the humor in it. I can't see the humor in it, but also it's deeply serious. I used to have conversations on Michael Jackson forums about it, and there were fans who would say, oh, it was a ridiculous thing to do because you're just antagonizing the police. And I remember reading that thinking, well, what do you do? You don't just hide away and kind of cower away when you're being victimized and demonized and bullied when you haven't done anything. There's two ways of responding to that, isn't there? There's one way of just kind of cowering away and never poking your head out of the sand pit again, or you kind of go to war. And Michael Jackson did the latter. He went to war. And the fans who were fans at the time to have gone through Thriller, The Girl Is Mine, Off the Wall, you get you have songs like Girlfriend on there. You know, Michael was thought of as being quite this kind of tame, placid character. And DS is the complete opposite of that. It certainly reveals his feelings about Mr. Tom Snedden. 
But it also reveals a frame of mind that Michael Jackson was in. Does he send letters to the FBI? Does he say to either do it or die? I mean, this is a man literally wondering if there's perhaps a greater conspiracy going on involving him in his life. And by the way, which we certainly saw him reflect on earlier on some of the earlier tracks. If he was theorizing conspiracies, he was probably right. A few years later, 2003, that same man that he dissed certainly dished it out once more for Mr. Jackson, didn't he? Raiding Neverland, ultimately, of course, I'm sure everybody knows. It's a great track production-wise. That gunshot at that one interval beat, like, incredible, incredible. It's weird looking at it, you know, in 2020. In 95, Michael probably thought, oh, I'm done with this chapter in my life. I'm never going to have to deal with this person again. But then, like you said, the trial happened. And is it true that on his website, after their acquittal, this song was on the website? On Michael's like official website, I read that somewhere, but I don't know if it's true, if you guys remember. That is true, yes, that is true. I think it was also on Thomas Mesereau's uh, website. So they put this, God bless the like, early 2000s, but they had this flash kind of generated video celebrations of uh, the fans and the woman who was letting all the doves go, and that was the track that they soundtracked it to. It's all about, you know, that he compares them to the KKK, where he said um, he'll stop at nothing to get his political state. You think he's brother with the KKK? Which is a, a bold thing to say about the district so, attorney. In reflection, you know, I've always interpreted it as, oh, Michael just, you know, throwing whatever. But like, I don't think Michael would do that. He's not one to falsely accuse. He's been a victim of that. There might be some legitimate wisdom to what Michael was revealing about the man. I, I don't think he'd say it if there wasn't. I think that line is of significance. You don't just throw that out about anybody, even if they were your enemy. Yeah, um... It's a very thinly veiled shot at Tom Sneddon. It kind of taps back into the deeper foray MJ took into hip-hop on the History album. It's just an all-out, good old-fashioned diss track. But ultimately, I still haven't figured out exactly what Tom Sneddon as a cold man is meant to signify other than he's just an awful person. But I think the truly what MJ wanted to say is kind of contained in the verses. He calls him outright a corrupt white supremacist person, so terrible, his mother didn't even love him the right way. I mean, he's probably allied with the KKK using his CIA, FBI resources to come at a black man, I guess is the, you know, overarching theme. But I mean, it's ruckus, it's rowdy, it's it's a very polarizing song for one, but it's also a conundrum in itself. I mean, it's a hip-hop type diss with a very heavy metal rock delivery background but i mean i mean obviously it fits with history's you know overarching theme but it also is just kind of a hint of personal satisfaction for mj also to be put on the album he just he just puts tom Sneddon on blast repeatedly for four minutes and i feel like he got a kick out of that (laughs) well i am no fan of the man but i will say his name makes for a great catchy chorus Next up, we've got money. It's not a topic we've heard Michael talk a lot about in his career so far, but we do know that during this era especially, Michael Jackson was a wealthy man and a major business entity, and the target to many schemes, none more public than the extortion he had faced over the allegations in 1993. John, tell us, what do we hear on money? Money for me is underrated genius. Actually, I think as time has gone on, more people have reassessed the song. It's 
innovative as much as it is broadly accessible, and it's it's just in line with those perfect songs that that Michael seemed to put out at least you know for every album. I see it in a similar vein of perfection as This Place Hotel or Billie Jean or Who Is It? And actually, listening to the MJ cast made me a fan of this song. Listening to Jamin's Rob Hoffman interview really made me appreciate it on another level. Of course, it's built around samples from Fatboy Slim's Skip To My Loops sample album, which is quite remarkable in itself, but he's not just using the samples and making an instrumental out of a couple of loops. He's taking individual snares from other loops and overdubbing them on the main sample itself, which is quite amazing. And of course, the the track has Niall Rogers on it, and it's also a, a very similar song to In the Back, where it has these mystery men that no one seems to know where they come from doing background vocals. Everyone who's worked on the album, I think, has been asked about this, and no one seems to know who those vocalists are. It certainly gives it an interesting soundscape. There is an early version of the song that goes for about 15 seconds longer, where Michael, towards the end, shouts out the names of rich people. From memory, he name-drops Murdoch. I think Trump is also one of them. So, yeah, I, I, I love the song. Uh, yeah, Money... It's another one of those heavily hip-hop-influenced tracks on the album. Shuffling beat, bass guitar thrown in. He delivers it kind of spoken word, like half spoken word, half rap. And I mean, he just kind of, it seems to be directed, I don't know, I guess at the hidden players in Hollywood. I mean, but I mean, kind of at mankind as a whole. He, He seems to imply that people would do anything for money given the right, you know, circumstance, obviously, is the, um general message of the song but there's still a lot to appreciate musically i mean at least with the chorus and the ending ad libs i feel like the shuffling beat it gives it that infectious rush it gives it a minimalist but also a deep feel at the same time it's actually one of the key integral songs on the album honestly even though it usually goes under the radar outside of michael jackson fans i actually i love it i love how it touches on not just typical corporate greed and even maybe industry greed, but it literally goes into the sort of military industrial complex with its references to soldiers saluting the flag. It's an incredible song. And and the groove you're talking about, that beat you're talking about, to me, it it feels almost like it's got sort of like an indoctrinating, militaristic, marchy. The groove sounds like the machine, the money machine that makes the world go round to me. Yeah, how it's all about, you know, the hypocritical nature, like you said, of soldiers going to war. He even talks about insurance companies. He makes a statement, I'll never betray or deceive you, my friend, but if you show me the cash, then I'll take it. And he also says, you say you wouldn't do it for all the money in the world. I don't think so. It's kind of like a funny twist on on the lyrics. I think I think it's one of his best songs lyrically on the album. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's just an amazing track. It's actually, when I think about it, the minimalism of it, as Ricky was saying, it's one of the songs that I think about that is closest to something that Prince would probably do. It's the kind of track that you imagine Michael being kind of more isolated in the studio. It's There's a great minimalism kind of to the track, which is, it's not overproduced like some, maybe, I mean, Scream, I think is a brilliant production, but it's crash bang wallop and everything is in it. I mean, lyrically, it's just uh, it's just phenomenal. Again, Maria said, I can't remember what the lyric is, but he ends with but, 
And it's prophetic because, again, we've seen posthumously what happened to Michael and all the friends who claimed kinship and friendship to him during his life, how quickly things turned around and how, what people were willing to do and what people were willing to say for money. It's prophetic and it's horrifying, actually. And also John had mentioned, I think he'd mentioned a previous version. I think snippets were available at some point on Twitter. Someone had posted some snippets of this demo. I think it was being auctioned at the time. And at the end of the song, Michael shouts out Murdoch, Turner, Ted Turner, as in the owners of CNN, which was really brave. Those are very powerful people in the media. It's probably why they removed those lyrics on the final version of the song. The names that are in the final version, he reels off the names and then he says, you want it kind of with dignity. And the names he reels off are Vanderbilt, Morgan, Trump, Rockefeller, Carnegie, Getty. And those would have been like the historical kind of robber barons in American history. You know, the establishment figures of American history. It's very brave, very brave lyricism, very brave to kind of call those people out on track. He wasn't shy about coming forward and saying what he wanted to say, which is one thing we always underrate about Michael Jackson is his immense courage. He could have just shied away and disappeared. He had millions in, in his bank account. And he didn't ever have to kind of put his face on the TV screen again. But he was cut from a different cloth. He wasn't like that. He was, like he said later on in his life, he was a warrior. He was ready to go to war and he was ready to call out names if they needed to be called out. I mean, it's phenomenal. Just a creative genius. And you have to have real courage and real nerve to do that. And the fact that he buried it under some of his vocals, it means that, you know, years later you can pick it out. I've never even heard like the kind of various tracks from the from the recording, but I mean, broken down like the stems. But I, I can only imagine there'd be more information buried in those records that we still yeah. won't discover for another 25 years. It's an incredibly intricate track. And towards the end, it, it really piles on layers and layers of harmonies. And what you're pointing out, Samar, about those names, in particular, Donald Trump, it's very, very interesting. Because Michael Jackson was staying in Trump Tower while recording history. Presumably, Michael Jackson was friends with the guy at the time. Or maybe he was just fronting a friendship with the guy. And I say that because, you know, he went into work that day to record that vocal. What wisdom did Michael know? What ugliness was he seeing that led him to expose his friend like this and to so deliberately tuck it in there, hidden from public view? No one outside our little fan universe knows about that vocal, really. And that's very much so unlike the shout-out for Trump that we would later see in Tabloid Junkie, which is much more superficial. Perhaps that one is even a little nod or gift to Trump. And maybe this one is more reflective of Michael's actual feelings. I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about the lyrics. I mean, I feel like it's prophetic. He goes really far into how far money motivates people, how far it'll push people, how much greed it can bring out of people. He starts off his choruses by saying things like, you know, you say you wouldn't do it for all the money in the world. I don't think so. If you show me the man, then I will sell him. If you ask me to lie, then I will tell him. If it's dealing with God, then you will help him. You would do anything for money. I mean, he's showing the whole machine and he's showing there's a limit to how, how far this machine will go as long as there are people around willing to do what it takes for money. It kind of builds off of this time around, in my opinion, because Michael felt like, you know, probably that all the false accusations were motivated by money, people out to extort money from him. It's almost like a two-part, three-part narrative that he's building with these 
core album tracks and we see it continued even later with more tracks but i just want to set that seed what's sad to me about money is that he sounds so woke and so aware he finally gets it he knows how it works yet nonetheless if you look at his life even from that point forward the charlatans and sharks are still everywhere to be found poor guy can't escape them and we know from money that he knows exactly what's going on the whole time. Heartbreaking to be so self-aware of so much inauthenticity around you. Okay, next track. And I'm sure most of us are aware that at this time, Michael Jackson owned the Lennon-McCartney quote-unquote Beatles catalog of songs. And on the History album, he decided to include one of them, Come Together, Originally recorded for the Moonwalker short film in 1988, it's sort of a bizarre selection to put on this album, and I always wondered if maybe it was a business move. Because later that year, in November 1995, Michael Jackson would end up selling half of the rights to the Beatles catalog. So during this time frame, you know, the catalog is being appraised and assessed and valued. So it's sort of a brilliant business move to put one of those tracks on a major pop record that's going to sell 16 million units just my theory i had my theory my theory was that um how many songs did he get with atv how many beatles songs did he get with atv i think it was 250 of the beatles songs and he could have recorded any of them and the one he chose to record was the one that they plagiarized or they were found to have plagiarized from uh, one of his heroes chuck berry i always had a theory that there was again a sense of reclamation on michael's part to take that song back for the black community because it was a song that I think John Lennon, who came to have wrote it, was taken to court by Chuck Berry's management. There are lyrics in the song that are taken from a Chuck Berry song. I think the song's called You Can't Catch Me and Here Come Old Flat Top is a Chuck Berry lyric. And you know there were interviews years later, Paul McCartney gave interviews saying that as John was writing it, Paul said, that sounds just like the Chuck Berry song. <laughs> he even had some of the lyrics, obviously, and the lyrics are still in there. So because Paula said that, John tried to change the melody up a bit. It still sounded a lot like the Chuck Berry song, so much so that eventually they sued and won the case. And then John had to kind of re-record some songs and kind of donate the proceeds to Chuck Berry's management team. So I think that's quite fascinating. I think it was quite fascinating that of all the songs that Michael could have recorded and released, that was the one he chose. And he was enamored with Chuck Berry. He loved Chuck Berry. And he always referred to Chuck Berry as the real king of rock and roll. There's um, a moment in um, the Living with Michael Jackson interview with Martin Bashir where Michael's sitting, I think he's sitting in his little home cinema at Neverland, looking at the screen and they're going through some old home videos. Actually, it might be the Michael Jackson home videos program that was on TV. And Chuck Berry comes on screen and Michael says, that's him there. That's That's the real king. That's a shot at Elvis Presley because everyone always refers to Elvis as the king of rock and roll, where people in the know who actually know the history of rock and roll music always refer to Chuck Berry as the actual king of rock and roll. I just think that's quite fascinating. There's also um, an award ceremony. I think it's the American Music Awards of 1980 or 1981. Either Michael is giving an award to Chuck Berry or he's talking about Chuck Berry. And he, he says he references John Lennon in that award ceremony. He says... There's something that John Lennon once said about Chuck Berry. He said, we loved Elvis, but we all wanted to be Chuck Berry or something along those lines. So I've always had a theory that that was the reason why Michael chose to record that song. 
it's interesting that it's on this album because, you know, we'd seen it seven years prior in the Moonwalker film. Sometimes I honestly think that he actually put it on the album just because it has the lyric Coca-Cola in there. Pepsi had dropped him as a sponsor after oh. that first round of allegations. I always think maybe that, that was just a slight dig on his part. I was very aware of just generally in music history, the Chuck Berry versus Elvis thing, but I did not know there was a come together connection. So that is very, very cool. That's breakthrough for me, Samar. Thank you. Did Michael ever say why he decided to put this on the album? Because it is quite weird that he had it in Moonwalker and then decided like years later to add it on his album. I've never really heard the story. The most interesting thing to analyze about Come Together is that very question. Why is it on here? He had no shortage of excellent tracks he was working on during that era that he could have filled out the album with as if he even needed to fill it up, you know, to max. I mean, so much on the album is sort of a quote unquote high art decision you sort of want to look at it as if it must be, as if it must be something like what Samara is suggesting, or maybe a business move to, you know, increase the value of his catalog, or maybe just as a, as a show to say, look, I've, I've got this guys. Like, I own this. This is mine. I'm claiming it. Well, I would find interesting though, is to find out whether Michael had recorded any of the other Beatles songs. I'd heard rumors that he'd recorded a version of Strawberry Fields. I'm not sure if that's hundred percent true, but I'd, I had heard that, that he'd recorded a version of Strawberry Fields fascinating that that's the one track he chose it's such a weird song it's just random words like he's got monkey finger he shoot coca-cola like what the fuck does that even mean it's such a weird (laughs) choice (laughs) yeah yeah it sounds weird when you go into the verses but i mean it's a very simple song i mean ultimately the goal of michael jackson as a music artist is to bring together people over his music i mean come together over me I think I read before that it was originally supposed to pop up on Decade, which was the greatest hit project that eventually turned into Dangerous. But obviously, since Dangerous turned into Dangerous, Come Together didn't really fit on Dangerous, even less than it really fit on History thematically. But since the message is so simple, I feel like History was the place that it would have gone. But also, I believe what Samar was saying is also not too far off from right, because Michael was very concerned about the minimization of black artists. When he bought the Beatles catalog, since we're on that topic, one of his first moves was to return Little Richard's publishing back to him. And in 2002, he spoke about that later. He spoke about the minimization of black artists. If you go to the bookstore, you won't see a black person on the cover. You'll see Elvis Presley. You'll see the Rolling Stones. But where are the real pioneers who started it? Who started this? You know, they're, It's so sad to see these artists are penniless. They, they created so much joy and the record companies took total advantage of them. This is something that he cared deeply about. And so I feel like it is a shot at the Beatles. I feel like it is a shot at the music industry. But it's also a simple rock message, you know, come together over me. It's simple and it's deep at the same time. There's a lot of implications in it that it's easy to overlook if you don't know how Michael felt about all these things, about, you know, about yeah. the Beatles, about Little Richard, Chuck Berry, you know, all those things. Yeah. Well, there's one thing that Michael was credited with at the Grammys when he won his eight Grammy Awards in 1984. And the biggest Grammy of his career was the Grammy for the best album, Thriller. He went to pick up his award and he paused and he gave a tribute to Jackie Wilson. Obviously, Michael was a massive Jackie Wilson fan. He paused to give a tribute to Jackie Wilson, who I don't think had been honored at that show that night, uh, who had just passed away recently. and He's really pointed in what he says about Jackie Wilson. Again, Jackie Wilson was one of the artists that uh, people believe that Elvis Presley, let's say, borrowed a lot from. (laughs) 
what Michael says is so fascinating. He says there are some artists who are pioneers, right? And then he says, and then there are some people who are followers. And he said, I want to say that Jackie Wilson was a pioneer. And then, he, you know, whatever else he says, a brilliant artist. And Jackie, wherever you are, I love you. And the sales of Jackie Wilson, greatest hits albums just kind of went through the roof because Michael had referenced him on the, the biggest night in American music uh, of the year. He had no reason to do that other than because he cared about these issues. I think I read in um, Moonwalk, Michael's autobiography, I think it's in Moonwalk, that the Jackson kids, when they were kids, they had gone to visit Jackie Wilson in hospital. If you guys are not familiar with the story that Jackie Wilson, I think the story was he had a heart attack on stage, collapsed, and then was paralyzed pretty much from the neck down for about 10 years. I think that's around the time he was in hospital for about 10 years, in a coma. And all sorts of shenanigans were happening while he was in hospital. There's a really good 60 Minutes documentary about business maneuverings that were happening around Jackie Wilson while he was laying in a coma. And that's worth watching. That is, I think that's still available on YouTube. It's worth having a look at. And the Jackson kids went to see him when they were in their teens. And he was obviously completely unresponsive. But I can only imagine what that effect would have had on a young Michael to see one of his heroes who was a dynamic live performer, completely incapacitated like that. Fast forward 20 years, and we all know what happened towards the end of Michael's life and all the kind of business maneuverings that were happening around him before he passed away. And there's a great tragedy in that because he was the one guy who knew the history of great black entertainers. And we were hoping he'd be the one who'd get away. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. But he awoke us. He raised an awakening in us to what was happening in the industry and what was happening to black artists. And what Ricky said about the speech that Michael gave about, you go to the bookstore, you won't see one black person on the book covers. You know, I work in publishing. And at the moment, with all the Black Lives Matter uprisings, it's a deep concern. It's always been a massive concern for me anyway, but it's, a, it's becoming a more deep concern for publishers that they're not representative, that they don't publish books with black people on the front covers because they still to this day think that publishing books with black people on the covers is a risk. Michael lived in an era where MTV thought putting him on MTV was a risk. You used to have billboard charts, you know, you'd have the Hot 100, then you'd have, they call it the R&B chart now, but it used to be called the Black chart. And he lived during that era. So, you know, it wouldn't have been alien to him to have seen all these kind of political maneuverings happening. He spoke to that wisdom in, in 2002 at the Killer Thriller speech to the fans when he talked about his awareness of the long history of black artists winding up sad and broken, I think are his exact words. I'd never heard the Jackie Wilson visit story, Samar, that was beautiful. And there's no doubt that those sort of experiences is exactly what he was not only speaking to at that party, but also what he may have been very well worried about. Also what he was out calculating, right? He was taking the knowledge of his artistic forefathers and applying it to a lot of the maneuvering he was making on this very album, I think. He just came off of an exercise in which everything he had built was going to be taken away from him, just like many of the sad, broken artists he was referring to. And now that we put in this perspective, I think there's no doubt that Come Together is definitely something along those lines. John Cameron, do you have anything you wanted to say about Come Together? I don't think we heard you on this one. Well, it's a, it's another song I definitely cut, uh, as as said by everyone else. Its inclusion is a bit strange. I think it might have worked in the context of the first disc. Had it had a couple of rarities, like Michael could have put someone in the dark or someone put your hand out on there. Maybe it would have made a bit more sense in that. It's the 
earliest recorded song on the album, I think it comes from 1986, maybe even a bit earlier in, in 85, but what's interesting about this for me is that it's it's Lewis Johnson's last performance with Michael. He was Michael's bassist on Off the Wall, Thriller, and I think Who Is It on Dangerous. But in preparation for this podcast, I actually did a, an A-B test with the version that's on the Remember the Time single and the version that's on History, and they're definitely different in terms of mix. The history version has a more defined rhythm, but the bass performance itself, I can't actually notice any differences on. So it's a bit of an oddity for me in a multitude of ways. Awesome, John. Thank you very much. You Are Not Alone, track nine on the history album. To me, the quintessential 90s R&B track written by an R&B contemporary, R. Kelly, record breaker, first track ever in music history to debut on the Billboard Hot 100 at number one. What do we know about You Are Not Alone? What do we feel about You Are Not Alone? Well, the story goes that, you know, R. Kelly wrote You Are Not Alone for Michael Jackson in response to personal events in his own life. And Michael liked the song because of personal events in Michael's own life also. But um, it's almost like two different narratives going on at the same time. Because Michael's saying in the verses, he's like, I'm alone, you know. I feel, I wish he would come back. I mean, he's he's telling us all these things that he would do if his lover comes back. You know, I'll, you know, your burdens I will bear. I can hear your prayers. And then the chorus seems to be something reaching out to him, whether it's a new force in his life or just the memory of people who love him. My theory is that it's Lisa Marie Presley. Um, Lisa Marie's newfound impact in his life. You know, you're not alone. I'm here with you. You know, I might not be with you right now, but my love is staying with you. Apparently, from what I read, Michael's contribution to the song was the key change in the chorus at the end, and R. Kelly didn't want to give him writing credits for that. And so Michael, you know, let that go. But at the end, the ad-libs, it seems like he's hit that realization. He's like, I don't want to be alone. I'm, I'm not alone. I'm actually, I'm not alone as I feel. I do have love in my life. It, it's, it's like tears of joy coming through those ad-libs. He's like, yes, I found it, kind of. It is an absolutely gorgeous R&B ballad. It's Michael's final ascension to the top of the Billboard Hot 100, and it gives him his record 13th number one single. It, it is one of his most enduring, one of his most timeless songs. It's a very welcome zen moment in the History album from all the anger. We, we felt a lot of anger. We felt a little bit of isolation. We felt a little bit of alleged paranoia. But now we're feeling a little bit of, we're on the path to redemption by the time we hit You Are Not Alone. We're on the path to liberty. He, he's feeling free. He's, he's growing as the album goes on. And we're, we're at that point where we're shifting from pure anger. We're going to the growth stage, I feel. I mean, vocally, it's amazing, too. I mean, he gives a very impassioned vocal performance on the verses and in the very end. His harmonies are just as lush as ever. And, you know, his ad-libs are, as seemingly always with an MJ love song, they make the song. They give it that extra fire kick that just you just keep wanting to come back to. And it builds absolutely perfectly. I mean, You Are Not Alone is arguably one of the best songs on the History album. Even though it, it's, it's not as complex as say earth song or they don't care about us or screen it's still powerful you still feel it you still you still want to bathe in it 
I guess you could, as Michael would say, bathe in the moonlight of it. I love You Are Not Alone. The short film for You Are Not Alone is very interesting, isn't it? From an image perspective, we're seeing Michael Jackson, a married man, in a short film with his spouse, the daughter of Elvis Presley. Interesting following up on that last discussion there about Come Together, isn't it? Have you guys seen the painting Daybreak by Maxwell Parrish? That scene in the music video where him and Lisa are laying next to the columns, that's taken from his painting. It's an interesting thing to reference because it's credited as being, I don't know too much about the painting, uh, to be honest. I do know that it's credited as being the top-selling print in American history, at least at the time, going back from the 1930s, which is interesting that Michael would reference such an you know, early piece of pop art in American culture. I have to tell you guys this ridiculous story. <laughs> when I was a kid and I had the history VHS, this was my favorite music video when I was growing up. And you know those shots of Michael where he's like flipping his hair in slow motion and you, know, you just see his face on the screen. I used to sit in my living room, I had my remote and I would pause it <laughs> every time we saw Michael close up. And I had a disposable camera at home and I used to sit there and take pictures of the TV of Michael's face from You Are Not Alone. And my mom developed it and she was like, why the fuck do I have 20 pictures of Michael Jackson in this camera roll? So every time I see the video, I just, that's all I see. <laughs> I'm surprised that he wanted to go full out naked in the music video and be so public because, you know, he was so shy and all self-conscious and all these things. So... I, w I wish I knew the story behind all that. It happens to be his last number one single in the U.S. on the charts. It's an interesting title because in 2003, it was sort of almost turned to as sort of the anthem from Michael at the courthouse. Fans would sing it. It would, it would, the, the posters would often say, you are not alone. Loneliness is a theme Michael Jackson often references in his music. Even his love song references that fear, that root fear that, that clearly he, he battled with, you know, his whole life with the mannequins and all that stuff. I mean, this is a real human experiencing loneliness at a, at a deep level that most people who have ever lived have never experienced. It's, it's, a, it's probably a deeper track than a lot of us give it credit to, you know, in, in terms of what it meant for him. What you said there, James, about, uh, you know, the, the kind of loneliness angle to it, even though it's a love song, there is a kind of overriding theme of loneliness. It's something that Michael mentions actually himself about how he loves that kind of juxtaposition of having these happy songs. I think he was referencing Blues Away, the first song he ever wrote. You listen to it, it's a lush, beautiful, kind of bumpy little song. It's rooted in tragedy. I think he referenced Smokey Robinson's Tears of a Clown. I can't remember which Smokey Robinson song he references, but he references one and he says he always loved that, the kind of a song that sounds really happy-go-lucky but, you know, you scratch the surface and it's much deeper and there's a much more kind of deeper theme and deep, deeper kind of meaning to it. Also, 90s R&B was hot as hell. And this was a banger track in that regard. It was all over radio. Great selection, a great commercial decision. He was hitting a lot of points with this one. And by the way, for his image, for that short film to show him as a heterosexual man proudly sexually on display with his female spouse was definitely something Michael, I think, wanted to tout around a little bit for the sake of his image. It worked. It worked brilliantly. Yeah, well, I, I think there was, a, there was definitely a, an allocated slot on the album configuration for, you know, a, a typical 90s ballad. And that's why I think the, maybe the competition was between R. Kelly and Babyface, who, of course, uh, during these sessions gave rise to On the Line and another 
track, which I don't think Michael actually recorded, Willing and Waiting, which is very much very much a product of its time and, and in that general genre that Babyface and, and R. Kelly and even Jam and Lewis really had a hold of. For those who, who enjoy Michael's vocals on the song, the version on the Ultimate Collection actually goes for 15 seconds longer, so you can experience him yelling not alone for, for a little more. The vocals, for me, I don't really rate the song that highly, but the vocals are, are certainly what does make it for me. And he actually did 18 vocal takes for this, so I think he was keen on getting it right. Interestingly enough, though, Jimmy Jam always said that this should have been the lead single for the album, following a similar pattern from Thriller being The Girl Is Mine and Bad being I Just Can't Stop Loving You. And I think Jimmy's actually right. I think it probably would have been a better decision for the album in general to have led with that. I just also wanted to say that um, R. Kelly released a newer version of You're Not Alone. I don't know if you guys have heard it on his 2010 album, Love Letter, like a more R&B type version of it, more upbeat. I have heard it. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, he's a great songwriter. That's, that's my comment on R. Kelly. He's a great songwriter, truly. He knows how to pump out those hits, that's for sure. Okay, next up we have Childhood. A very interesting selection from my perspective. It was the B-side to the lead single of the album. Uh, It's the B-side, of course, to Scream. Unlike many B-sides, this was a B-side that was equally promoted, seeming almost equally promoted, seemingly. It's listed on the uh, single cover. It had a gorgeous, presumably very high-budget short film shot for it. But... You know, I don't think there was any if ands, or buts about it being a, you know, giant commercial smash. It almost feels as if it's a track that Michael insisted get the sort of prominence it got. It's a very fascinating genre to release as a single in its era at its time. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of show tune, Michael, in a similar manner to You Were There, Elizabeth, I Love You, or, or even to an extent, Smile. The vocals are... are just immaculate and every time i listen to it the video comes to mind as as it does with a lot of the tracks on here uh, there's such strong visuals tied to such excellent songs if you're a michael jackson fan this definitely invokes emotions having heard michael talk about his his childhood to the extent he has the demo took three hours to make which is rather remarkable and again another something else that i would absolutely love to hear it's just a, a lovely song. It really is. It's inspired by songs like People by Barbara Streisand in theme. I'd say Childhood is probably hand in hand with Morphine for the most honest song Michael Jackson ever you know, wrote and put out. I mean, it's produced, A, very elaborately because it was, it was recorded with a live orchestra, which is awesome. It also has a very childlike feel. It's almost like a lullaby. It's wistful. It's, it kind of makes you feel young, kind of makes you feel like you're standing in maybe a nursery. But um, it's very honest. He's, he's making himself as vulnerable as we've ever seen him. Uh, he, at this point in the album, we've seen Scream, They Don't Care About Us, Earth Song, This Time Around, Money, where he has just absolutely lashed out. He's, you know, he's let the world know, hey, I'm, I'm pissed off. But at this point, he's like, you know, 
he's trying to be as open and, and vulnerable and honest and I guess you could say naive as he can possibly be. He's he's turning to the world and he's saying, Hey, I'm not a weirdo. I mean, this is why I am the way I am. You know, could you try to understand me? He delivers it, you know, beautifully, humbly. It's also a very minimalist, very simple, very minimalist track as well. I feel like he wanted the message to resound as clearly as far as possible. At the end of the day, it's actually still a very good song. It's it's kind of classical. It's a song you can kind of play in the background. Kind of makes you want to sing along, but it, it can also, you know, accompany you if you're doing a, an important project like you're typing or reading. It's, it's not something you expect from Michael Jackson, especially for a casual listener. But, you know, if you're a fan of Michael Jackson, you get it. You know, you're like, I mean, this is this is why Michael is the way he is. It makes you remember him. It makes you think about Neverland. I mean, he would play it on the carousel, I believe. It's so deeply connected to him. It evokes such imagery if you actually care about Michael. It's a staple. It, it was very essential, if you ask me. And it fits very well in the flow of the album. And of course, it has those beautiful dual meaning lyrics. Have you seen my childhood? Speaking from the perspective of Michael Jackson, he's, he's lost it. Have you seen it? And of course, literally everybody who, who's listening to the track has seen his childhood. We're the reason he lost it in many ways. Just a sumptuous, beautiful song and just showcases his magnificent vocal ability. I mean, no one could really ever sing like Michael Jackson. I think actually when it came out, I think when A Scream came out, I think it was supposed to be released as a double, one of these weird things where they kind of claimed it was a double A-side. So they were trying to claim that Childhood was also a single in its own right. It is the soundtrack song to Free Willy 2, of course. In fact, officially, officially, it's almost a shame to say it 25 years later, but I believe it's actually titled Childhood Theme from Free Willy 2, I think. Yeah. What's quite interesting about that single is how jarring it is when you listen to, back in the day, like I said, I had a Sony Walkman, so I'd buy, even when I bought singles, I'd buy cassette singles and... Side one was Scream, which was, you know, lots of bluster, lots of kind of noise. And then how jarring it was to play side two. <laughs> but you'd have all this noise and kind of racket on one side. And then you'd have all these kind of strings and beauty on the other, which really kind of summed up the kind of duality of Michael, I guess. But what was quite jarring, I found, was the short film. So when you see the Scream short film, this is where I think it became a bit hard to kind of keep up with Michael as a fan, because you see the Scream short film and that's michael jackson that's the michael jackson you're familiar with from probably i guess the end of the dangerous era a few days later the the video or the short film for childhood was shown on mtv and he looks like a completely different person <laughs> in the sense of the styling the hair is completely different and michael didn't think in the same way as everyone else thought you know when most artists are working on a project they release as almost like one big package and there's a kind of they hire one stylist to work on the whole album for most of the singles but michael looked different every time we saw him at this stage every video like when we see him in stranger in moscow the video for that he's got very long straight hair and it was a bit jarring it was just a bit difficult to kind of keep up with what was happening because at this stage, we're not able to kind of keep up with the evolution of him, basically. I've tried to have conversations with people about the song. And, you know, they always brush it off and they're like, oh, my God, Michael's talking about his childhood again. If you listen to the song, he's not even just saying, oh, I didn't have a childhood. He's talking about how the world views him because he wants to relive his childhood. 
he says, no one understands me. They view it as strange eccentricities. And he says, people say I'm not okay because I love such elementary things. So it's not even just talking about, I wish I had a childhood. He's like looking at how the world sees him because of it. There was a degree of incredible self-awareness that Michael Jackson went through, even maybe just prior to the allegations. He speaks of it at the Grammys in 1993, which of course he included that speech on a collection of his short films, the Dangerous Short Films Collection, where he talks about this recent revelation he has had about, I think, what you just hit on, the way the world views him. And you see a bit of output there that reflects on that quite deeply. Stranger in Moscow, I think, in some regard, maybe even lyrically songs like Ghosts and Is It Scary, which were written in the history era. There was a level of awareness that he's different in a deeper regard and I think childhood is maybe sort of that explanation. He's had a few years to process all that stuff. And he's like, you think I'm weird? Here's why. I think it's interesting oh. that in the video, he doesn't even stand up. Like he sits in the same spot through the whole video. He doesn't barely moves. It's like the same camera angles the whole time. He almost is like secondary to the whole point of the video, which is a childhood, which is like the kids floating above him, which is interesting. One of the biggest critiques about Michael Jackson is that he was somebody who was completely unaware of the world, unaware of how the world viewed him, that he was just self-absorbed with megalomania, deja vu type things. And childhood kind of shows the exact opposite, that he is somebody who is a part of our world, who wants to be a part, who is aware of what's going on and how people see him. Even though he had talked about it in public before, those types of critiques were still running around, partially in direct response to the history teaser, which I'm not trying to go too much into. But I feel like childhood is one of those the best examples of that is, in fact, not true. It's, it's one of those things that people kept saying was so missing, but he's now attempting to do and still not getting the due credit for it. You know, I think also personally, he's a human being going through aging and, and life like anybody else. And he's a man who's witnessing his peers marry off, have children. Even in his own world, he's different. Like work is, he has a very unique relationship with work in a way that even other pop stars and other artists don't have. Michael Jackson sacrificed his life for his craft, for his art. And maybe even not by his own choice. And perhaps that's the message in childhood, right? Like I didn't choose this path in a lot of ways. It's a lost childhood. That's at its meaning what a lost childhood is. You know, there's a person underneath that pop star. And I think that person became truly self-aware during this era in the early 90s. And I think childhood is that outcome of all that. Tabloid Junkie, a Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis Jam. Michael addresses fake news media before there was such a word as fake news media. Back when he was calling for tabloid burnings, Michael and tabloid media or even the media in general have had a very complicated and at times mutually beneficial relationship with each other. Michael Jackson truly was a media master. And as a study, he admired other media masters like P.T. Barnum. John Cameron, what can you tell us about Tabloid Junkie? Well, it was one of the last songs that Jam and Lewis worked on in these sessions. And something to understand about Jam and Lewis is they're definitely not like Bruce Wadian, where they record things, well, properly. If, um, if you have a look at their multi-tracks, and certainly in the last 
year or so, plenty of them have, have leaked online. It's a mess to try and sort them out. It, it really is. So as I, as I touched on earlier a bit with Scream, it's really a testament to Steve Hodge and Bruce Whitty and that they're able to make these songs sound so amazing. With that said, Tabloid Junkie, I, I, I absolutely love it. It's a, it's such a highlight on history. Maybe it was even single-worthy, I'm not sure, but it's definitely a fan favourite. Michael's vocal is just mixed far too low, and it's a real shame with Tableau Junkie because I don't think the lyrics have ever been published anywhere, and it's damn near impossible to transcribe a lot of them, so I'd love to know what he was actually saying. I was just going to say that this song makes me so frustrated because the lyrics I have read are so good, but kind of similar to the way he sang his vocals on Smooth Criminal. It's really hard to understand what he's saying, so it just gets lost. I was driving with my husband and I was like singing all the lyrics and my husband's like, how the fuck do you know what he's saying? I can't even understand what he's saying. He's just mumbling. I was like, no, <laughs> I've studied this. I mean, the few things we can make out are quite revealing. Speculate to break the one you hate. This is a man who understands the inner workings of how these reporters and journalists, nasty reporters, as Donald Trump would call them, but, but he understood how they work and he understood the operation in there. And I, I think the lyrics sort of reveal that this man is himself kind of a media executive. Literally speaking, he owns a media company. Like, he, he gets it in a deep way. And in, in a lot of ways, I think sometimes he's, it's kind of almost a criticism of the public as much as it is of the media. He's asking us, why are you buying it? Why are you feeding into it with your cheap, base human desire for this gossip? He, he sort of knew our weakness there, and so did the media, and they were at war with stories about each other in a lot of ways it's very personal though he makes quite a few personal references doesn't he for fans of michael jackson who were fans during the early 80s and mid 80s to hear him kind of reference homosexuality or bisexuality on a record was just we'd never heard anything like that before from michael you know we'd heard stories that he was always looking at prince and the kind of things that prince was able to say on record i think one of the stories was michael had heard prince's record jack you off and had said I'm going to record a song like that one day. <laughs> Obviously, he never would and he never did. But just to hear Michael reference kind of adult things was quite jarring and quite shocking because you knew who his target market was. One of the refrains at the end of the first verse is, they say he's homosexual. And it's just so shocking to hear Michael say that. He also makes a point of saying that the, you know, a lot of the tabloid media is racist. You know, To lie and shame the race is one of the lines. You know, mm -hmm. It's not just about fake news and false news. It's about structural racism in, in multiple structures and in the mass media. And there's one of the lyrics, obviously, on Scream, as jacked as it sounds, the whole system, the whole system sucks. So when you look at Black Lives Matter now, and people are talking about systematic and structural racism and anti-black prejudice, that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the whole system, the whole everything that, you know, the kind of fishbowl that we all live in it's polluted. And from the education system to the prison system to the media, people are not getting a fair deal from these people. What he wasn't able to say in Money, where he, where he edited out, you know, Rupert Murdoch or Ted Turner, he says it here, you know, one of the kind of ad libs, he, he says, Sunday Times, not a friend of mine. So he's referring to kind of News International, the Murdoch press and the issues he obviously had at the hands of them. Again, very brave to take these kind of structures on so publicly and set yourself up as a target. You know, when you're trying to sell a record, you need promotion and you need positive press. 
But Michael was saying the tabloids are all bullshit, <laughs> even though they'll have advertising carrying. I mean, it's just mind boggling. Imagine there'd be an advert in the back of, you know, one of these newspapers to buy the history album. You buy the history album. The history album tells you the tabloid is bullshit. Brilliant. The Trump reference that's in that song. I believe they were, it's even referred to as friend Donald Trump. And, you know, Donald Trump, of course, perhaps with different intent and perhaps with different vision in mind, understood a lot of what Michael understood about tabloid media and the media in general. Of course, we, I think we're all now beginning to understand the way Donald Trump thinks. And I can imagine that while staying in Trump Tower in 1995 in New York, recording the history album, that perhaps they had some conversations related to this and perhaps maybe as a, a nod in some regard, or maybe even just a, a thank you. He put that Donald Trump reference in to that Tabloid Junkie song. And, it, and you know, of course, I don't want to go too deep into speculation, but they both knew what they were talking about. That's for sure. They both knew the topic of that song quite intimately. Michael had several songs about the media and tabloids, but, you know, like Privacy and Scream, it was from a first person perspective where he was, you know, being victimized by the media and his feelings about it. He says it here too, you know, like he's being tortured, you know, with your pen, you torture me. But he kind of looks at it as a whole, you know, he name drops JFK and Marilyn Monroe. Like you said, like how black people are vilified in the media, their lyrics, um, in the hood, frame him if you could, shoot to kill, to blame him if you will, if he dies, sympathize, which is so fitting with everything that's going on right now. Yeah, like Maria was saying, and like Samara was saying, you know, uh, Tableau Junkie, it's it's almost like a prophecy. You know, second verse, like she just said, if he dies, sympathize, to blame him if you will from the hood, if he dies, sympathize, such false witnesses, damn self-righteousness. And the black stab me in the back in the face to lie and shame the race. I mean, with the incredible spectacle about George Floyd going around right now, and I mean, amazingly, even though we have, you know, his his awful murder on film, you still have people, prominent media figures who will still try to blame him for his own death. We've seen people say his criminal background killed him. A mayor from Mississippi said, if you can talk, you can breathe, even though, you know, obviously he said he couldn't breathe. I mean... To me, such false witnesses, this damn self-righteousness, that's exactly that. Trying to justify, trying to take the blame off of the officers who brutally mishandled him for no justifiable reason. I mean, it's, it's a pattern that's been going on longer than this past decade with when Black Lives Matter you know, became such a prominent movement. I mean, it, it's been happening. It was happening then, 25 years ago. It was happening 25 years before that. It's been happening for hundreds of years at this point. I feel like it, it, it really matters how he starts the verse with in the hood. I mean, no offense, mm-hmm. you don't really think of Michael Jackson in the hood. Well, at that point in his career anyway, but of course he was born into a very, you know, lower class. He, he was born into a very lower class neighborhood. He was raised in a very lower class neighborhood until they moved out to California as the Jackson 5. It's that significant setting that again places himself amongst the people like he did and they they don't care about us it's it's that setting that shows you what perspective he's looking at it from he's taking on racist media directly by saying from in the hood because these are people who are disproportionately affected and nothing's done about it their voices are suppressed they're blamed for their own deaths i mean shot in the back during traffic stops. We thought he was armed even though he didn't have a weapon. You know, these types of things. I feel like it's that type of, just that one line encompassed so much more than just what he even said in the verse. 
you know what? But it applies. It applies at Michael Jackson's scale. Michael Jackson was in the Hollywood hood, so to speak. Here's a man. If you look, especially during the history era, I mean, there was the the media business dealings that this man was trying to navigate through and work through. I mean, he found himself, I think, rejected in a lot of ways from corporate Hollywood, from the, you know the the failure of the DreamWorks deal, which he had just dealt with, the dealings with his catalog and the financing surrounding all of that. I find it very interesting if you look at the press release about the renegotiated deal between Sony Music and Michael Jackson, the artist, not the ATV deal, around the history album. There seems to be a very deliberate point, I'm assuming from Michael's PR people, to frame Michael Jackson as a brilliant businessman. He was in a Hollywood black man's hood, I, I think, or I think he was feeling some of that. It's amazing how this stuff plays up at so many different scales and so many different levels and the experiences can feel relatable no matter who you are or no matter how successful you are or how wealthy you are. There is a long history of Michael Jackson struggling for respect as a sort of executive mind or mastermind, so to say. I don't, I don't know what the right word is, but sort of the business genius that I, I think he was seeking to be in, in just in general. Trying to get a seat on the table is a massive issue. And, you know, Michael had a seat on the table. He was 50% co-owner of Sony ATV. Again, this is where I talk about his heroism and his kind of courage. What did he do when he was in that position of power? Did he kind of just live off the fat of the land and kind of chill? He blew the whistle for us. He blew the whistle for people to tell people, obviously, musically, that they don't care about us. But, you know, the press conference where he talks about the music business being, he says the music companies conspire against the artists, dot, 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 but especially the black artists. And at the time he said that, he was co-owner of the biggest music company in the world. And that takes a lot of nerve to do that. He referenced a story about Irv Gotti. Is a record label Murder, Inc., the Ja Rule record label Murder, Inc., something that Tommy Mottola had said in conversation about Irv Gotti, called him a racist derogatory term. And Michael used that phrase in a live press conference to kind of highlight and show the problems that black people are having in corporate America. So... Very brave to do that. And you generate powerful enemies doing that kind of thing. Incredible piece of work with a lot of depth and a lot of meaning. Next up, Too Bad. Not much has been said about Too Bad, I feel, in the fan community, but I think there's kind of a lot there. Let's dive into it. John Cameron, what are we hearing? I love hearing every version of this song. There's been a few work prints of the ghost film that has leaked, and so there are different iterations of this track in there. It's produced by Bruce Woodian, Renee Moore, Dallas Austin, and I think Jam and Lewis were given credit at the last minute because Jimmy Jam plays clavinet and I think some percussion on it as well. I don't understand why this wasn't a single. It's very remix worthy and it is very much of its time as well, but it just has a certain classicality to it that's so enjoyable. It's it's very underrated and I have to give a shout out to Remixed by Nick, who put out an extended version of this track a couple of years ago, which is uh, my favourite version. The longer this goes for, the better. This could go for an hour and I'd still be grooving to it. It's an incredible vocal. Absolutely. And on the multi-track, there's actually, he he has a couple of vocal performances, uh, particularly towards the end with those ad-libs, which go on for like about seven minutes. And they're all as incredible as each other. Really amazing. 
Yeah, I love this song. I think this is one of those songs that's never going to get dated so fresh after you know so many years. And in my mind, it's kind of similar to Scream. He's kind of venting his frustrations and, you know, he keeps repeating, like, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? You know, he's feeling he's feeling hunted like by everybody. And, you know, he always said, you know, he I have rhinoceros skin is what he always said, you know. And I feel like that's what he was trying to convey in this song, you know, that he's still going to be victorious, even though he's had all these obstacles. You know, because he says, you know, I'm standing, though you're kicking me. It's too bad. My view of Too Bad has kind of changed over the years. I used to think it was just an angry song, but I kind of look at it with a playfulness and a mockery now. It's almost like he's taunting his enemies at this point. I mean, you still feel the aggravation because he's like, what do you want from me? You know, you got blood lust for me. It is a spiritual successor to Bad in a way, but he's toying with them now. He's at a point where he's kind of moving past it and he, And I feel like that growth is really manifested in the next song. But part of it comes from the intro to the track. I mean, he never got a chance to collaborate with Run DMC. And instead, he uses a sample of them. The king of pop, there is no higher. Sucking MC, you can call me sire. I mean, he reaffirms his status. He's like, you know, you, you guys have tried this. You've tried this. You've tried this. But I'm still here. I'm still Michael Jackson. I still just dropped Scream. And it debuted at number five. I just did You're Not Alone, and it debuted at number one. My album is huge throughout the world. I mean, you tried, but you didn't succeed. I mean, kind of where I get that, you know, na-na-na-na-na-na, too bad, too bad about it. That's kind of where I get that mockery, that, you know, playfulness, that taunting from. For sure. That's cool. I've never, th- I've never thought of it that way, but you're completely right. That melodic approach is totally in reference to mocking. Exactly. But, I mean, also, though, it's one of the more futuristic-sounding songs on the um on the album i mean just looking at the beat the the kind of shuffling robotic scratching effect that he threw in there is kind of it's kind of futuristic but i mean it also it's also another one of those buried in hip-hop sounds on the album i mean kind of like i mean history in a lot of ways kind of follows a similar formula of dangerous he tried to base the core sound of dangerous around new jack swing heavily influenced by rhythm nation with history you see a lot of him basing that sound in just you know hip-hop of the time with an emphasis on trying to experiment and try to stay ahead of the pack and make his music sound different from all the other uh, you know hip-hop artists around there and it kind of shows I mean, he started this tradition of having rappers on his songs with Dangerous, but now you see he's branching out. He's getting more mainstream people like the Notorious B.I.G. and Shaquille O'Neal, which is pretty cool. I'll be honest with you, Shaq's verse on Too Bad is probably not my favorite, but I guess it was appropriate for the 90s, give or take. I love it. And how luck? first of all, how lucky is Shaq? I mean, he had such a brief rapping career, and he gets to put it on this stone tablet forever recognized as Shaquille O'Neal, a rapper. Very cool. Very, very cool. Well, the word is around the fan community that this was Prince's favorite Michael Jackson song. I don't know where that story comes from. I think it comes from Prince had visited, I think, Michael at at one of the recording sessions, probably in New York, I think. And I don't know where the story originates from, but apparently he was asked, you know, what's your favorite song on the album? And he claimed that Too Bad was his favorite record on the album, which doesn't surprise me because if you listen to it, it does have a Prince kind of feel to it. Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic song. I'd also heard a story once that it was the song with the most amount of samples in it. I don't know if that's true or not, but that was one story that was kind of doing the rounds back in the day. 
a fantastic song, but also like John had mentioned earlier, there's multiple versions of it. The one that we see in Ghosts, where it's kind of stripped down and portions of it with just Michael singing. And again, you just hear how magnificent his vocal delivery is. It's interesting also what Ricky said about the kind of brattish nature of Michael, because it's something that Lisa Marie Presley, I think, in one of her interviews with Oprah talks about, you know, Michael, you know, was a bit of a brat. He could be a bit of a brat when, you know, he was confronted by things. And that is the kind of brattish response, isn't it? Too bad, too bad. Okay, let's take a break here for a second. And let's talk about something cool I just discovered. Did you guys know that there was an MJ Cast store? And I gotta tell you, I'm impressed. Jamin and Elise and crew, you guys did a great job putting together some awesome merch. I picked up a t-shirt. I love it. I rep it everywhere I go, which to be honest, isn't that many places these days. But nonetheless, check this out. Go to the MJCast.com and click shop and shop around. There's no harm in just taking a look. I love the stuff with the colorful MJCast sunset logo. Turns out really nice. I mentioned t-shirts, but there's also tote bags, notebooks, and I love the pillows. Those are cool. Excellent stuff. Please, everyone, go check it out. The MJCast.com and click shop. It's a great way to support the podcast, not just financially, of course, but also to represent us and the man's legacy and our community here at the MJCast, the internet's premier Michael Jackson podcast. So again, go to the MJCast.com and click shop, or even simpler than that, www.themjcast.com slash shop. And let us know what some of your favorites are and maybe even what else you'd like to see. Okay, up next, we have the track History, written by Michael Jackson, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis, produced by Michael Jackson, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis. Tell us a little bit about history, John Cameron. It's always amused me that... A story which, which seems to be common with every Michael Jackson album is that they were at the last minute desperately trying to cut a few minutes so it could fit onto a CD. And and Michael, of course, refusing because one part makes him dance or, you know, some other excuse to, to make a song seven minutes where, where he could. So when I listen to the song history, I just think there's a good three minutes of dialogue you could have removed there. I don't really enjoy the song all that much, certainly not out of context of the album. Interestingly, it actually sounds like a Brian Lorenz song that was done in, I think, 89, 90, called Seven Digits. The percussive vocal on the verses sounds very, very similar. I think if I were to listen to this song, it would probably be uh, one of the remixes. Tony Moran did some good stuff on here, and so did Umar, made up of Q-Tip, Jay Diller, and Ali Shaheed Muhammad. They're probably my preferred versions. History was actually the, the song that they had to bring in an extra console for. I think it ended up being something like 160 individual stems that they had to put together. Of course you would know, my friend. That's awesome. I agree with that. This is not one of my favorite songs. I prefer the remixes way more. I think it's because, like, there's such a stark contrast between the verses and the chorus. The verses are so like dry and tough. And then the chorus is so soft and melodic. And I don't know, it's not my favorite, even though I have the lyrics from the song tattooed on my spine. What are the lyrics that you have tattooed, Maria? Every path you take, you're leaving your legacy. And it hurt like hell. (laughs) 
Oh, very cool. That's awesome. Nice, nice yeah. to hear that. <laughs> I didn't even know this for a long time, but Boys to Men sang the harmonies in the song, which was kind of new information for me. Yeah, the biggest thing on the planet at the time, really, that they had like, massive number one singles at the time. So it was a bit of a coup for Michael to get them on his track. I mean, I've got to disagree. I think it's a complete masterpiece. It's one of those Michael songs that, again, because it's not a mainstream Michael song, it's not Billie Jean or Beat It, it's quite precious for fans. And it's so inspirational. I find so much inspiration in that song. And yeah, like Marie said, it is quite jarring. You have these kind of really heavy verses and then these kind of almost Beatlesque bridges and then chorus. It's just a fascinating insight into the mechanics of Michael's mind, I think, because you really hear so many of his references that only he would have kind of put together. Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali being interviewed. Then you've got a sample of Martin Luther King Jr. You've got a sample of Malcolm X. And Michael was the poster child back in the mid 80s of, of America. They try to use him as like a propaganda tool, I guess. And then all these years later, he's sampling Malcolm X is by any means necessary. Fascinating just to kind of understand what Michael was referencing and what kind of things that were kind of, he thought were important enough to be documented in something that he wanted to release called history. Almost speaks to that manifesto from 1979 in a lot of ways. I mean, this is Michael Jackson, the art project that was Michael Jackson, the King of Pop. It was a grand vision that required plotting and planning and move by move strategy. And, you know, I think there's, again, I use the word wisdom, but I think in the song history, he's, he's speaking to a lot of wisdom about what he has realized about the meaning of life and our purpose and our own unique role we play in the grander scope of mankind. Michael Jackson was, you know, very, again, self-aware that his decisions would have impact for entire cultures, black American culture, American culture, pop culture in the 90s. I mean, his wokeness about self, and then I think his implanting that it actually applies to all of us. It's literally, it's in you too. It's a role you play too. There's a lot there. I, it's hard to articulate, but I, I think it's deeper than, you know, a lot of us have recognized. Yeah, you know, he lived his art and he actually believed you know, there's a deep sincerity in what he's saying. You know, he believes that people have the ability to kind of change the world. Everyone has the ability to change the world. And again, it was something that was consistent in his work. I was on the MJ cast a few years ago and we talked about the demo for people. Was it People of the World? The Brad Buxer song, which is kind of leaked online. One of the versions, there's all these different voices of children speaking at the end in different languages. He was always trying to kind of empower what he would say, give voice to the voiceless. But he was always trying to empower people to kind of make a stand and be something and do something. Lift your head up high, sing out to the world, I am someone, you know, be something. You know, that was inspirational for me. I'm sure it was for all a lot of Michael Jackson's fans. And this song, that's why I said earlier, it's quite inspirational. You know, every day create your history, every path you take, you're leaving your legacy. And that's important because... It's an important message because it, it's telling people to stay awake and to stay alert and not to be frivolous with their time. Time is precious and make use of it and make the best use of it. And that's a brilliant lesson, isn't it? Yes, um, I have to agree with Samara on this one. History is a, it's a great song, but it's, it's, it's kind of built like Earth song and they don't care about us. It's like three different parts, but it's also a narrative. It's a progression. You know, the song actually progresses. 
the verses are like your hard work, your struggle, your determination. And the verses becomes that that hard work paying off to your dreams coming true. I take that back, your hard work paying off and then, you know, the the ending, the the grand finale is kind of like your dreams finally coming true. You you've reached the top of the mountain, you've conquered all your obstacles. You know, that's how I view it, but it's like it's also kind of confusing because the lyrics still kind of contradict the music, especially in the chorus, you know. The chorus sounds uplifting in the background, but he's saying, you know, how many victims must there be? slaughtered in vain across the land but you know he's also calling for unity that's his call for people to you know you know live in harmony to you know it's it's classic michael jackson really it's will you be there keep the faith heal the world wrapped into one it has a lot of historical connotations it borrows a lot from the military like military victory parades i mean i feel like the verses are inspired by uh work songs especially that of enslaved people I think there's a lot more connotation in that. And I feel like I feel like that even more because he takes that struggle, the struggle of enslaved people, and then it pays off with the joyous gospel contribution of the Andre Crouch Choir in the finale. But even beyond that, the harmonies of boys to men as the song starts to build, starts to get more soulful, starts to get more of a seasoning to it. The power of the song really is that climax when he has the two part with the young girl and his own ad libs are kind of soaring in the background and the music itself is like the horns are like taking off, they're like shooting up. It's like an ascension into heaven or something. It's like he gets to the top of the mountain and he just shoots off into space. It's it's absolutely it's absolutely amazing. It brings me goosebumps every time. History is been one of my favorites from the very beginning. It's the masterpiece. It, it's like a three-part suite, I guess. The contrast between the verses and the chorus, it also speaks to history itself. History is a major, major contradiction in and of mm-hmm. itself. It's, it's what's, yes. Mm. You know, what's history to us, our history, and let's say UK history is completely different. They're gonna tell two different stories where the United States might feel like we were the the noble, honorable heroes. We might be seen as the villains for whoever we went and quote-unquote saved, like maybe, say, Hawaii. History itself is a conundrum, and he kind of uses the music to tell that story, too, but he also uses the lyrics to tell that story, too, all while trying to be expiring. And that's why I feel like history can be kind of polarizing it can be kind of confusing when you're listening you're kind of like i want to feel inspired but he's kind of depressing me with saying you know how many victims must there be i mean what you nailed is perfect i mean the cyclical nature of history even there's certainly meaning to it it's in a very intentional conscious aural aesthetic choice to make those super super hard-hitting choruses and those super sort of almost blissful utopian almost sounding choruses and it's, it's reflective of history. Look at the last century, right? World War and then shining peace for 50 years. Only, you know, past, present, future. It sort of continues, the struggle and the peace. There's something there, for sure. Like, that is not just, I want this groove to sound like for groove's sake. There's a story there to what we're hearing. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to mention was um, the some of the samples that Michael puts into the record. Like I said, it's a kind of good insight into what he thinks of as important mo- important moments in history. Of course, we've got Muhammad Ali, uh, we've got Martin Luther King, but we have like Malcolm X and the By Any Means Necessary speech. On the same record, we also have our current Queen Elizabeth II, when she was 
a princess, Princess Elizabeth, Princess Margaret, they recorded this little uh, cassette, Greetings to the Children of England. The fact that Michael felt that Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were to be recognized correctly in their right place, in his mind, he saw them on an equal plateau. So when Michael, years later, met Otis Blackwell's daughter, uh, Otis Blackwell was a songwriter. I think he wrote a few songs for Elvis. I'm not sure if he was ever credited for them or paid for them. Michael met Otis Blackwell's daughter and he said, I met his daughter today. And meeting her today was just as important to me as meeting the English Queen was. That gives you a real good idea and a good insight into the mechanics of Michael's thinking. I appreciate the fact that he also included audio of himself as a child in the beginning, where he said, I don't sing it if I don't mean it. So I appreciate that, you know, he included himself in the historical context with all these other great figures. Okay, Little Susie. Uh, this is a super interesting song, I think, to me. Again, Michael really sort of kind of genre bending a little bit again on this album into the heavily show tuny kind of orchestral vibe. But this one goes back. The copyright on this one goes back to the off the wall era. Uh, I think as early as 1978. In fact, I'm privileged enough. I got to hear a cassette tape of like that first demo. And it's, I have to tell you, it's all from memory here, but it sounds exactly the same. Exactly. Like it, when Michael wrote that song back in 1978, he didn't change a thing other than re-record it with contemporary everything in 1995. Very interesting. And I think there's a story behind Little Susie. I don't want to get it wrong. Does anybody here know it? It's about a murder or something he read in the newspaper. Am I wrong about that? From what I've read, um, I don't believe there is an actual Little Susie. I feel uh, from what I've read, he was inspired to write Little Susie by a poem called Bridge of Sighs by Thomas Hood. And as a matter of fact, the song actually contains a sample of the poem but also by um, a photo series called Like. My German is not perfect, but I think it's called Leichen, which is the photo that we see in the history uh, booklet of the little girl with the um, bandaging on her face. It was a series of like photos taken that Michael was inspired by, but I don't, I'm not sure, I don't believe that there's an actual little Susie. There's like a story about it floating around on the internet, but I I'm not sure that that's the actual case. That's as far as I know, is, is, it, is that poem and those photos. It's a beautiful track. Don't you think, John Cameron? I certainly do. Yeah, it's, a, it's a absolutely brilliant. I, I'm glad you spoke of hearing the 78 version because I've, I've spoken to someone else who's also heard that and they said exactly what you did in that it sounds pretty much the same. It's an interesting insight to what Michael was working on around the off-the-wall period because you have a lot of the more contemporary pop stuff that, that he would eventually develop, but then you have a song like this and Iowa, which is more classically influenced, and I would love to hear the original version. When it came to recording the, the history one, Initially, Michael recorded it with real strings composed by Jeff Grace, who did the string arrangements for much too soon as well. But for whatever reason, Michael didn't like that version and made uh, Brad Buxer redo the strings note for note on a synthesizer. So I always prefer real strings over synthesized 
strings, but the ones on, on history sound pretty close to the real thing. The strings version runs for about 4 minutes 50, so it's actually shorter than what went on the album. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing song, and, and rather remarkable that he dipped that far back into plucking it from the vault. Yeah, it, it took me a long time to appreciate this song because growing up, it used to scare the shit out of me. I used to be so scared for number 14 to play because the beginning of that song, the girl with the humming and the music box, like it scared the crap out of me. But, you know, as I got older, I was able to appreciate it. And, you know, this this story kind of reminds me of Smooth Criminal, you know, where there's this like mysterious murder and we don't know exactly what happened, but we know that she falls down and there's blood in her hair. And it's a risky choice to put on a, like a pop album. I think it's beautiful. I always wonder, like, is he telling his own story in a way through this song? Because, you know, he talks about how lonely she is. And he write, he says, she knew no one cared. Neglection can kill like a knife in your soul. And, you know, he always talked about how lonely he was. I always felt like that was an autobiographical aspect to it. Yeah. Well, what Maria said, actually, is I fully agree with that. I, I think Quincy Jones had said that, you know, whatever Michael wrote was always from a sense of an autobiographical perspective. Even if it didn't kind of come out like that, it was always autobiographical. What's really interesting is what Ricky was saying about the Thomas Hood poem because I wrote about this eight years ago and I read up a bit about Thomas Hood and I thought, why would that have been a poet that might have featured on Michael's radar? Why, what was it about this poem? There was poetry that he'd written. One of the poems he wrote was called A Black Job. It's based on one of Aesop's fables, which was in itself called Washing the Ethiopian White. And the story is about a slave owner who has an enslaved black slave who he washes to turn the slave who tries to wash him, like wash the color of his skin off to turn him into a white child. And in the history of Michael Jackson, the story of Michael Jackson and kind of all the gossip and innuendo about Michael Jackson was the stories that he was always trying to kind of present himself, bleach his skin, take away his features to present himself to a white American audience. So I always thought that was quite a fascinating reference for him. The poem that Michael references is The Bridge of Sighs. And one of the lines in the poem is, Take her up tenderly, lift her with care, fashion so slenderly, young and so fair. And that's pretty much verbatim what Michael puts in the, in the record. So I always thought, what was it about these poems that struck a chord with him? What was it about those things? So again, I don't know whether it was a reclamation, but a fascinating insight into the mind and workings of Michael Jackson. I should say, though, Little Susie is one of the records that whenever I get into a Prince v. Michael Jackson debate and argument, I always say Little Susie is the kind of record that Prince could never write. I think I'm right on that. <laughs> There's nothing in Prince's catalogue that sounds anything like Little Susie. And Little Susie is, is the kind of record that you imagine would be very important to Michael Jackson. She was the girl with the tune, which is, I think, interesting, isn't it? Given, you know, Michael, sort of a boy with a tune, maybe, so to speak. There was something he definitely related to at a very deep level, I think, for sure. This is one of those songs that I, I wish he would have made a music video for, because I really would have liked to see what kind of direction he would have taken this. Yeah, well, I'd love to know what sure. this 1978 version sounds like. Um, you've already heard, if you've heard the 95, you've essentially heard it's that, but primitive. Every incredible. note, every, every detail, like every, I'm not kidding you, every Because I'm thinking, who, who was he detail. recording? Who was he recording with in 1978? It would have been pre-Quincy, probably circa 
Triumph album? That would be around Destiny, yeah. Yeah, if if I remember correctly, the tape was labeled 1980. I, I, the tape I heard might have been from 1980, but I think the copyright registration is 1978. So it's a song maybe he even plucked out once or twice before in the span of his career. Written in 1978, recorded some demo in 1980, and then brought out again in 95. Very interesting and deliberate choice at the end of an album, written during an era in which he was manifesting the vision that would almost ironically culminate in what is the history album. There's something conclusive, I think, happening by deciding to include it on this album so many years later. There is a conclusion. He was wrapping that up, whatever that is. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, 1978, he would have been 19 years old. Why I'm so shocked by it is because there's such adult themes in there and it's such an adult song. You know, when he was 19, blimey, that's incredible. I'm quite stunned by that. Unless there's somebody out there in the world listening who knows, please tell us if you were there in the room, if you were lucky enough to ask him the right questions while he was here with us. We may never know. His vocals on that 1978 version, do they sound, because there is a change in vocal kind of style, you know. He definitely re-recorded the vocals. He definitely re-recorded the vocals, but shockingly, shockingly very similar. It's incredible. This was a work that he didn't really even finish like he just basically executed it like as if the manual was written years ago i mean it's definitely a demo that's for sure but it it was the manual that he took out of the drawer and executed on precisely all those years later i have to piggyback um off some some are um i definitely agree i feel like little Susie is the best example of michael jackson's you know musical vocabulary i mean you hear that he was working on a classical album around the time of his death. And, you know, I feel like this song is probably quite possibly the closest we would ever really get to that because it's, it's very classically influenced. But I feel like it fits so well in his catalog because he's the same man who's made the songs. He's made Thriller. He's made Smooth Criminal. He made Ghosts. He made Is It Scary? And, I mean, we know that Michael was a big fan of horror and that type of thing. I feel like Little Susie is like a classical horror operatic type song and the powerful thing about little susie is that it other than stranger moscow and earth song it evokes some of the most imagery on the album just from listening to the music i mean when i hear it i feel like it's best to listen to little susie probably late at night as creepy as that sounds but the imagery it evokes it's it, it's like a ghost story especially the intro with Payezu. And the girl singing and the toy playing, it's like a ghost story being set up. All I can think about are like old abandoned opera houses kind of flashing between those images of, you know, shows, field and masquerade balls. I mean, it, I don't know. My mind goes all these different places when I'm hearing a little Susie. I agree with Samar. I feel like it's a song that Prince A probably never would have thought to do and probably wouldn't be able to pull up. I don't feel like there's any pop star that would have been able to pull off a song like Little Susie, especially, you hardly expect it from Michael Jackson. But like I said, it shows just how vast his musical education really was. He loved rock, he loved R&B, classical, jazz, I mean, everything. But I also feel like that there's a lot of mystery buried in the song, because I mean, he paints a vivid picture of a murder scene but there's no answers was it a you know was it a murder was it an accident what really happened here there are so many horror elements 
buried in the song, it demands that you listen to it over and over again, as unsettling as it truly is, especially for a pop audience. It's proof to me that, A, he would have successfully been able to make a classical album if he wanted to, but he also could have done, like, movie score or theater score. I feel like it's a true testament to his real genius to like his boldest contributions to the music world. It's something we never would have seen had he continued the formula that he said in Thriller and with Bad. I mean, we're fortunate that, you know, by now in 1995, that Michael Jackson was an artist who was far less commercially driven and he wanted to show the full versatility, the full extent of his artistry. I feel like Little Susie is a song that, as an MJ fan, you have to try harder to see the beauty in, but it's, it's there and it's a worthy journey. You just have to give it time. It had to grow on me, too. Don't let me lie to you. No doubt about it. Very nice, everybody. That brings us to Smile. Smile, uh, as it's told, is a deeply special track to Michael Jackson. I, I think the story goes that Charlie Chaplin wrote just the instrumental melody originally, and then many years later, it was brought out again. I'm not sure exactly who, but the lyrics came from someone else, basically. John Cameron, tell us what we're hearing on Smile. I think the lyrics were applied when uh, Nat King Cole brought out his version. I, I think he was the first to do a, a, a lyric on that. Michael's version, though, I mean, it, it's it's just stunning, and I, I feel so lucky that it came about, which was kind of by accident. It was really just Michael and David Foster sitting at a piano talking about their favourite songs, and we're so fortunate that this one came up. So the early vocal takes actually contains the original lyrics in there, parts of which Michael rewrote. I used a bit of those early vocal takes in my musicology episode, which focuses on history for those who, who want to hear it. And also I have to give a, a another honourable mention to Remix by Nick, who last year on the anniversary of Michael's passing put out a... He put out a couple of versions, but he put out uh, just Michael's early vocal and a piano. And it's probably my favorite Michael Jackson song ever. Favorite song, favorite version, just, it, it's absolutely spectacular. So be sure to check that out. Yeah, it is gorgeous. I love that version, actually. Yeah, I, I love this song. It's obviously a, like a tribute to one of his heroes, Charlie Chaplin. And you know, we've seen several photo shoots that he had, you know, dressed up as Chaplin. And I think it's such a perfect ending to the album. We've gone through this like roller coaster of emotions. We've been angry, we've been sad, we've been depressed, we've been in love, and now you know here we are, and he's telling you to smile, you know. And his vocals are so incredible, and you know the song ends with him like humming and kind of giggling through the tunes. And this is also one of those that took me a while to really appreciate because it's so different, <laughs> but it's 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 a masterpiece for sure. My perspective on it is that it's it's actually it's a it's a tragic song. In a lot of ways, it's a tragic song, superficially masqueraded in a smile. If from the perspective of being a little boy and your father telling you to put a smile on before hitting the stage, it's quite tragic, isn't it? And I think it sums up Michael's life. He had to put a smile on through burn accidents, through everything he faced. He had to get up and put a smile on. That's kind of sad, isn't it? But it's, it's so sweet sounding. And it, it sounds so cheerful and hopeful, but is it? You know, it makes you wonder, honestly. Honestly, I do feel like that's kind of exactly what he was going for. 
uh, like Maria was saying, like the placement at the end of the album is absolutely not accidental. Because, I mean, it's a musical book. He's painted a picture of his life over the last year prior to 1995 up to that point. He's painted such a grim picture. He's, you know, he's painted these, you know, these parasites in the media. He's gone directly at Tom Sneddon, at Evan Chandler, at Hollywood, at the the music industry. By this point in the album, at Too Bad History, he's just really starting to, you know, feel liberated. And so Smile, at this point, you're wondering, the listener's wondering, how did he get through all this? You know, how do you deal with all this? I mean, you're Michael Jackson. You you deal with such terrible things. How do you deal with all this? And I mean, it's no accident that he's saying, you know, I just sing my favorite song and I listen to my favorite song and it just tells me smile. But I mean, the way he delivers it, it's almost as though it's it's as though he's smiling, but it's as though he's tearfully smiling. There's just like this little tinge of sadness that follows the entire song. Sometimes his voice breaks. You can kind of feel that he's still sorrowful while smiling. He's like, you know, I just smile through it all. I put on. And I mean, honestly, when you see Michael in public, that's exactly what we get. If he's not wearing the mask, he's looking at the cameras, he's smiling at the fans, he's waving. I mean, this is this is usually how we see him anyway. So it's just a manifestation of him putting his life in song. I mean, it's not just beautiful, but it, it is Michael. It's gorgeous. It's timeless. You know, when I play it around people, they're surprised. I'm like, I didn't know Michael Jackson could really or would really, you know, come with this type of vibe, come with this type of sound. It's so soothing. This is a song I can just, you know, listen to when I'm relaxing. People are surprised. They're they're so used to those those thumping, hard-hitting rhythm tracks that make you want to get up and dance, you know, like Billie Jean or Criminal or Jam. It's another testament to Michael's musical vocabulary to me because, and a fun fact about it is that it was completed on the same day as childhood because they both had live instrumentation from an orchestra. I think the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, I believe. Smile is a gem, to say the least. Is anybody comfortable talking about Michael Jackson's relationship with or admiration for Charlie Chaplin? Michael always felt kinship with Charlie Chaplin. Obviously, Charlie Chaplin's most famous character was the tramp, you know, the small little moustache, the kind of clothes and the top hat. And during the History World Tour, when Michael used to perform Billie Jean, the way he'd do it, as opposed to previous times when he'd done it, he'd walk onto the stage with a little suitcase. Um, Really Chaplin-esque. He'd come on stage with a little suitcase, put the suitcase down on the table, open the suitcase, and then one item at a time... You know, he'd take things out really slowly and deliberately and the crowd would go berserk because they'd understood what was going on and what song was about to be performed. I always thought that was a nod to Charlie Chaplin. You know, the hat, the glove, and the kind of... When he performed it live on tour, there'd be one white spotlight. So basically the stage looked like a black and white set. And I think he always felt a kinship to Charlie Chaplin. I remember when, years ago, when I was putting together one of these Michael Jackson Academia Project videos and I prefixed one with a Charlie Chaplin quote. Charlie Chaplin had lots of issues in America. Uh, He was kind of accused of being a a communist sympathizer and suffered heavily at the hands of the American government and the American press. And the quote was, I have been the object of lies and propaganda by powerful reactionary groups who by their influence and by the aid of America's yellow press, have created an unhealthy atmosphere 
in which liberal-minded individuals can be singled out and persecuted. Charlie Chaplin. Now, who else might that have applied to? <laughs> and Charlie Chaplin and Michael Jackson were both investigated under the Mann Act, which I always thought was quite interesting because the Mann Act originally, when it kind of came out, came out. I think Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight world champion, I think he was the first person investigated or prosecuted under it. And the belief was at the time that it was basically a racist piece of legislation. It's interesting because Michael refers to Jack Johnson in interviews and how, you know, he took great solace and great strength from the story of Jack Johnson. So I'm sure he did with Charlie Chaplin as well. It's interesting how Michael, even before the kind of myriad issues he had and the kind of catalogue of incidents that kind of plagued him later on in his career, he felt a kinship to Charlie Chaplin. You know, even at the height of his success, he felt a kinship to Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin was a man who had to leave America and basically lived in exile for most of his life because he was chased out for his alleged political beliefs. I know the stories were that Michael had visited Charlie Chaplin's widow. I think they lived in Switzerland at some point, and Michael had visited her, and I think stayed in touch by letter. I'm sure there's a copy of the letter that circulates somewhere from Charlie Chaplin's widow to Michael. It might even be, am I imagining that it's in the history CD booklet? I might be wrong. I don't believe so. I think there is a dedication to Charlie Chaplin, though, in the booklet, and his maybe his wife. Clearly, a very, very special relationship that the man had with Charlie Chaplin. And Samar, you mentioned seeing Michael at the History Tour, the only panelist who has. Because um, I'm the only one old, old enough, that's why. What did, you, what did you see? So I went to see Michael at Wembley Stadium in 1997, and I'd seen him numerous times before at Wembley Stadium, and every time I'd seen him at Wembley Stadium, I'd rush to get to the front of the crowd. So by the time 1997 came around, I was 24. So I was, it was the first kind of album that came out while I was an adult. I wasn't in such a rush to get to the front of the stage back then. So we actually sat up in the stands and it really, you just don't get the same feeling like sitting in the stands at Wembley Stadium as you would if you're, you know, front row. And it's really hard to put into words because if you're not a fan of lip syncing, not many people are, you're going to take issue with the show. But Michael was a performer. He was an entertainer. And if you're in a stadium with 72,000 people, Michael Jackson's on stage and you can hear Michael Jackson's music at full volume and you're a Michael Jackson fan, you're still going to have a good time. I mean, in terms of performance, it wasn't up there with the Dangerous Shows or the Bad World Tour. You had a bit of a feeling that Michael was kind of dialing in a little bit. I mean, there's still great moments. I mean, I, th I think as soon as the beats for Scream kicked in at the beginning, actually the video that kind of launched the whole thing where Michael ends up popping up on stage in a little spaceship and then the beats for Scream kick in and just seeing the reaction. Because where we were sitting in the in the stands, you could see a sea of people on the floor on the kind of ground when the stadium just go absolutely crazy when Scream came on. And, you know, just see thousands and thousands of people just jumping up and down. There was a real theme to the whole concert, actually, where there hadn't been particular themes in previous concerts of healing the world and kind of Earth Song was a massive part of the show. But yeah, it had come kind of at the tail end of Michael's live performing. And unfortunately, it wasn't as good as the Bad or Dangerous World Tours. He gets a lot of flack, particularly on the History Tour, for lip syncing. I'm among the voices that will say it's probably fair. But I will tell you this. When that mic would switch on, 
when we were lucky enough to get, for example, an Earth Song performance, when he would give us a little bit of live, oh my God. Like, oh my God, did he sound amazing. Brunei, World Music Awards. So I think the comparison you're making probably has a lot to do with that, I imagine, the vocals. Yeah, I mean, the Brunei show is quite interesting, isn't it? When he does sing live, he sounds fantastic. There's the Earth Song ad-libs that people post quite regularly, which is really just, he just, I mean, Michael didn't really have a history of gospel growing up. He, he didn't study in the, you know, learn how to sing in church. He learned how to sing on stage. So for him to perform any sort of gospel and just hear how brilliant he is, I mean, it's just fantastic. And that is like, you know, Michael at his most raw, you know, there's nothing else on stage, just him and the microphone. And it's just him belting it out. Nothing compares to that. I think what we felt as fans was that somewhere along the line, Michael kind of thought he needed to put on a show when actually he was the show. No firework was going to be better than Michael Jackson singing live. Do you know what I mean? No tank on stage was going to be better than Michael Jackson singing live. Mm, and I yeah. understand, you know, that he was very much into the show, into the show business part of the performance. You balance that with credibility as well, don't you? And, you know, years later, as fans, what do we share online when people say, all oh, right, let's have a Prince v MJ battle. What do you share with them online? What videos do you share with them online? You're, you're probably more likely to share that Brunei ad lib section than anything else from the history tour. For sure. Yeah, no doubt. I think it's it's a production marvel. You know, um, I kind of I think one of the best ways to appreciate it if you're not really a fan of lip syncing is to just kind of look at it as like updated production instrumentation for the songs like, say, Billie Jean or Beat It or really all of them. I mean, I'd say like my one of my favorite things to do is to go play Beat It live in Gothenburg at full blast because it just sounds so absolutely epic and you know for what it's worth when the mic comes on in that show he's he sounds probably among the best on the tour I feel like this is the culmination of seeing Michael go from you know a, a very free-flowing performer to a highly theatrical performer it's similar to this is it in a lot of ways because it's very it's it's far more theatrical than anything he'd ever done from that point on. I mean, if you look at Bad Tour, it's mostly singing with dancing thrown in. Then Dangerous is kind of like half singing, half dancing. It's the perfect balance. And then History, he focuses on the dancing. And I guess at this point, he believes he can't really, his singing can't really keep up. It is what it is. But I still find that there are things to appreciate about History Tour. It, it has its own narrative. As a show, it kind of feels like a farewell, the way it's structured, the way the the way the show flows, you know, the ode to Billie Jean, like Samar mentioned, you know, the um, the suitcase, Earth Song and Heal the World and History. I think a lot about things he could have done for the show. I've always imagined what if he took taken that history teaser and he'd made that the intro or the ending. I mean you can't you can't do without a spaceship. So I feel like what if he'd done like really pulled that off on stage. I feel like that would have been epic. But um, I'm deviating. But all in all, I love history tour still. I never got a glimpse of the man, so I take what I can get. <laughs> For sure. I, I certainly I speak on behalf of everybody here in North America. We certainly wish he would have brought it here, no doubt. Nonetheless, the history album and the history project, including its short films, including its promotion, including its tour, have made incredible impact. Real quick, everyone, let's go through and, and talk about just the impact that uh, you feel history has made on our culture. John Cameron. Well, for me, the History Album is the best representation of Michael. It's 
his studio vocal peak, in my opinion. It's his creative peak, as well as representative of a series of creative peaks. And also something that often doesn't get mentioned is the first disc. And whenever I speak to someone who's more so a casual Michael Jackson fan, they always say that that's the best compilation. So such a fantastic move to marry a Greatest Hits compilation with a complete album. I don't think very many people have done that. I would say it's a Trojan horse thing. White America in the mid-90s was not interested in hearing Michael Jackson's Black Outrage. If you wanted to sell albums, you better include The Way You Make Me Feel. And it worked. It worked beautifully. Yeah, completely agree. And of course, there are some glaring omissions, but it, it does have a certain flow to it, which works pretty well, given that it's jumping back and forth between eras. Maria? Yeah, um, like you said, I think if you want to know who Michael Jackson was, you should listen to the History Album. You know, it's complex, it's complicated, it's all over the place. And with every project he did, he wanted it to be the biggest and the best and, you know, to beat every record. But he took such a risk with this album compared to all his other work. You know, it wasn't really commercial. You know, you can't put a song like Little Susie on a commercial mainstream album, but he still took that risk and did what he wanted to do. And he really put his soul into it. And I think it's it's kind of funny when we talk about like the promo for history, how this guy who, when you see him in interviews, he's so shy and he's so humble and, you know, doesn't want to make a big deal about himself almost. But then he's also the same person who commissioned like 32 foot statues to be all over Europe, you know, for promotion for his album. So I think it really shows every aspect of who he was. If you want to know who Michael Jackson was and you were asked to refer people to one album, then this would be the album you'd probably refer them to because it kind of tells you the whole story. about There's happiness in there, there's love in there, there's deep tragedy, there's great anger. There's a timelessness to the whole thing. You know, sometimes you can listen to the Dangerous album, some of the Teddy Riley production on there. It sounds of its time. Some of it does sound like from the early 90s. Uh, and you can date it, but some, most of the songs on history are not like that. There's some people who just write themselves into the stars, and Michael was one of those people. So what, what that meant was that his legacy would be preserved forever. So whatever happens, whatever documentaries come out, whatever people say about him, whatever negative thing you'll ever hear about him, he gave so much to our shared culture so much to the world that people cherish him, people look after him, and people are willing to kind of fight for him 25 years later and 10 years after he's passed away because he gave so much to us. He empowered so many people. And History is one of the albums that people reference now. People on Black Lives Matter protests, which song are they playing there? They're not playing songs, you know, from Thriller or Off the Wall. They might play Man in the Mirror, but really they're playing They Don't Care About Us because that's a message that affects so many people in so many areas of life and michael recorded that while he was at the peak of his celebrity and that's what's really key it wasn't michael recording that in a state of desperation he could have recorded another rock with you if he wanted to and that would have been number one he could have recorded another beat it that would have been the number one record he didn't do that he took great risks when he didn't need to take great risks yeah i agree with samara i feel like it just sums up michael jackson the artist you know, in the 90s, you know, after bad, his sole motivation isn't just to sell millions and millions of records. I mean, he came out saying that, you know, he expected all his albums to sell 100 million copies, but he was really 
trying to express himself more as an artist and that's as where it was very present on dangerous it's even more present on history if you just look at the makeup of history it's it's experimental he's trying to stay ahead of the pack he's taking r&b rock opera gospel blues horror he's pushing it as far as it can go on a pop record i mean scream they don't care about us stranger moscow earth so i mean really every single song on the album pushes the boundaries of what is a pop song that just speaks to michael wanting to express his artistic capabilities at that point i mean the legacy of history it will forever be one of those albums that casual listeners you know don't fully appreciate don't fully grasp but it's still made enough of an impact to where some of the songs have, are lasting like of course like samar said that they don't care about us it's still an integral part of black lives matter right now the video has gained more and more views lately they don't care about us has creeped into the top 10 most played michael jackson songs in the world right now on spotify as of today it's at number eight to this day the most streamed song on the album but you are not alone is a staple of michael's catalog even for casual listeners uh, scream the video is still emulated to this day exactly uh earth song is still referenced when we talk about you know the state of the world i mean climate change is getting even more well, climate change has been pushed to the background of the national conversation right now, or the international conversation right now, but we still know it's back to the problem. Earth Song still comes up with it when that issue is actually at the foray of our focus. But history, I would say it has less of an, a lasting or known legacy than, say, dangerous, bad, off-the-wall thriller. But amongst Michael Jackson fans, it's, it's considered his peak, his artistic apex. I mean, we see how far he has pushed himself how far he's pushed the boundaries of tracks we see how honest he is we see how bold and daring how less concerned he is with selling records he wants to be heard he has something to say we see how hardworking this man is we see our friend our hero at age 37 i don't know how well you guys are dealing with aging or what you know about it but it is tough man it is probably extra tough in that business it's probably extra extra tough if you've had his childhood, it's probably extra, extra tough if you are a literal burn victim that has to wear wigs. It's probably extra, extra tough if you have medical conditions that change your appearance and your perceived race and identity to the world. What our friend, our hero faced and to come out so damn strong, working so damn hard, right out of drug rehab, right out of business deals gone bad, right out of media obliteration right out of child abuse allegations to come out so hard and so strong with so much incredible courage if it weren't for history he wouldn't even perhaps be our hero if it weren't for history he perhaps would have gone down in history as just another pop star of an era it's because of history that michael jackson solidified himself as the king of pop forever and ever and ever and ratified all of us as keepers of his story of his gospel because of history michael jackson made us the army of love that will forever protect his gospel it's incredible it's an incredible project with unbelievable depth that i guarantee you we'll be talking about for history 50 and when we do we'll discover even new surprises that delight us as if hearing it for the first time. It's incredible. What a project. 
thank you all so much for your incredible insights. And to you fans listening, please chime in and share on social media. We want to hear from you. This is a discussion for all of us, all of us in his army. Samar, how can we find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at the MJAP. What with everything going on in the world right now, there's not that much Michael Jackson content on there. Lots of political stuff and lots of, well, MJ inspired stuff, I guess. You know, we're talking a lot about representation and, you know, the lack of representation in our culture. What's been happening in America is a manifestation of that, that when people don't see themselves, that affects people and it's, it disempowers people. So we need to empower people and get people represented across society. Yeah, follow me if, you, if you're interested in that. Sean Cameron, how can we find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Cameron underscore John. You can also find me, uh, my page on Facebook. My podcast is called JC's Musicology, available on all fine podcast platforms and a few dodgy ones. The next episode will be dedicated to Off the Wall. Maria. Um, yeah, on Instagram, it's Maria Palby. On Twitter, it's Maria Palberg M. And YouTube, it's Maria Palberg. If you want to see the video I made about the Black Lives Matter protest. Yeah. Ricky. You can find me on Twitter at ASAP underscore underscore Ricky, R-I-C-K-E-Y. And you can find me on Facebook at Ricky Alexander. And of course, you can find the MJCast on social media at the MJCast on Twitter. Also, the MJCast.com on Facebook, the MJCast on Instagram, the MJCast, and on YouTube, the MJCast. If you have feedback on this Michael Jackson podcast episode, we'd love to hear from you. Contact us at the MJCast at iCloud.com or find the links to our many social media networks on www.themjcast.com. Keep Michael.